Comic Geek Speak presents The Crisis Tapes, Episode 18, Interlude the First. And welcome back to The Crisis Tapes. I'm one of your hosts, Peter. And I'm the other one, Adam. <laughs> hey, Adam, how are you? Doing great, Peter. Thanks for joining us here in, uh, in the CGS studio. That's for, right. Which has been uh, lying fallow here for about two and a half months yeah. since we developed a few technical difficulties. But the kind of show we produce here, those problems do not need to give us pause. That's right. So I'm just staring here, staring at my uh, staff crisisologist uh, <laughs> placard uh, with pride. That's right. Uh, we got our... Uh, schedules to line up to come back and talk about the crisis. Uh, just to pull the curtain back, I mean, you could you could be listening to these episodes back to back, but the last time we were together was December 2017. Mm-hmm. So that's a difference of about 18 months between episodes of this show, which is uh, well, it, it's usually produced uh, roughly annually. But, right. Uh, <laughs> even that's a little uh, less often than we'd like. So uh, a little behind schedule here, but. Better late than never. Right. And uh, so we're uh, coming to you here in between uh, important issues of the Crisis series. Uh, last episode, number 17, we talked about part two of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Maxi series, issue four. And uh, as we know, uh, Marvel, you know, this is something we observed on our own, and then uh, you know, a deeper research into Wolfman's intention revealed this to us. Marv Wolfman actually intended the 12-issue Crisis series to break down roughly into four-issue acts or phases. Correct. So here we are. Um, it was just a very convenient uh, break point after issue four, uh, that major climax where all the surviving universes appear to vanish into antimatter and then into darkness, and it was just a major holy shit moment uh, <laughs> as all of DC fandom held its breath in 1985. And it was a perfect time for us to take a break from the usual uh, sequence of analysis and discussion and... Uh, Talk about some other stuff. That's right. Perfect little pit stock. Technically, we don't even exist. All the universes have blinked out. We shouldn't <laughs> even be here. We are hosts in limbo. That's right. Um, because we don't know what our schedule will be like, uh, we never like to talk about when we're going to return or whatever, I thought, let's do this right now. We have an anniversary coming up in December of this year because December 6, 2009 was the very first Crisis Tapes episode. Uncanny. So we are going on 10 years by the end of 2019. Mm. That was a pretty innovative year. I you know, uh, just realized uh, I released a, a time bubble a couple of months ago, and I realized it was just about exactly, by coincidence, it was going to be released just about exactly on the 10th anniversary of the first time bubble in oh, wow. 2009. We were hot back in 2009. Oh, yeah, we were a spin-off machine. <laughs> We tasted the bug, and we, we couldn't stop. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so this is an interlude episode, and what we are going to do with these episodes, uh, our, our original plan was take a look at the DC Universe, um, at all the other titles outside of the crisis, that shipped during the months of crisis issues number one through four, and see if they had anything that had to do with the crisis, whether it was an official tie-in, whether it was a mention, 
did we did we get to these issues because of a footnote in crisis and that's what the focus of this kind of interlude episode will be however in this first one uh between crisis uh on infinite earths number one through four there are only a handful of issues that we can really talk about so we're going to make this kind of like a catch-all episode where we're going to talk about a whole bunch of crisis-related topics. Mm-hmm. Yep, some uh, from the period and some uh, more contemporary. Correct. Uh, so you're going to get a nice chunky episode, and it gives us a way to bridge the gap between the first act and the second act of the crisis. And we're gonna, and it also gives us a chance to to wet our whistle again uh, in the crisis universe and and. Um, uh, you know, just kind of gab for a little bit, right? Right. So we have a bunch of different segments we're going to do in this episode, and we're going to start it off with um, how you can spend money on the crisis. <laughs> because there have been a number <laughs> of collections in the past, oh, you know, maybe a year or two. Um, this may not be complete. A lot of this information may not be complete. But these, these are things that we, we caught, we researched, um, and by all means, if you, uh, if we miss anything, you know, let us know, but, uh, we're going to start off with a couple collections, uh, and we'll start with one of Adam's favorite, uh, events. So why don't you p- kick us off here? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I'll kick us off, but, uh, you'll have to run it in for the sure. touchdown. Yeah. Cause, uh, yeah, all original, uh, research in this episode is, uh, courtesy of the University of Rios Press. <laughs> I gotta say, he, he did a lot more work to put this episode together than I did. And then he's, he was just kept on sending me emails saying, Hey Adam, check out this thing I found. And Hey Adam, here's this other thing. And here's the scans of the pages that I painstakingly made an email to you. So thank you, Peter. This is, this is your work much more than mine. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right that Zero Hour Crisis in Time is a favorite of mine. I mean, it's uh, it pales in comparison to the original Crisis, the text that's really the, the focus of this podcast most of the time. Um, but uh, it, it's the series that got me into DC fandom back in 1994. It's, I took it as the ideal jumping-on point. I just started reading Marvel stuff like two years earlier. And um, it, it, it did what it uh, set out to do in that it uh, re-streamlined post-crisis DC continuity and chronology a little bit and uh, provided a convenient jumping-on point uh, uh, for uh, neophytes like myself. Uh, so it definitely did its work with me. Uh, so that was a five-issue miniseries uh, plus a whole bunch of crossovers plus a whole month's worth of uh, zero issues for every existing DC comic series and also a handful of brand new ones that were being launched out of Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now there's um, a hardcover. Uh, it was just uh, released last month here, apparently. Uh, 2018. Oh, well, was, <laughs> last month, a year ago, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting which, which year it is. Uh, yeah, so uh, 13 months ago, um, a, tr- a hardcover uh, with a new intro by uh, the uh, architect of this grand disaster, Dan Jurgens. Um, and um, Peter's notes here says that it includes an updated timeline because there was this cool kind of gatefold thing in, uh, I think it was probably zero hour number zero, uh, which was the final issue of that series. It counted down from f- uh, four to zero. Um, uh, giving an updated uh, sequence of events, um, which is fairly similar to what was uh, laid out in History of the DC Universe, but with uh, a number of uh, significant changes. Um, 
And uh, does this mean that uh, the, the, the timeline included in the hardcover is even updated from what was on, in there in 1994? Correct. Apparently, they, they, one of the selling points on the solicitation was um, that there's new updated material. And from what I was able to find from a YouTube unboxing video is that most of the new material looks like it's coming in where it says uh, five years ago and today. So, for instance, if you're, uh, I clipped an image from that YouTube video, and you can see they added in Wonder Woman and Impulse, who are not on the original timeline back in 94. Um, so I have to imagine everything from five years ago onward is just slightly revamped. There might be some other changes earlier in the timeline, but I can't see it. I, I haven't found an image online. I don't own the hardcover. So um, just by going from that image alone and you compare it to the original, Wonder Woman and Impulse are new, and I'm sure there's probably more to it. So, it's, so it says updated, but really I think it's only updated up to – they just threw in new stuff up to 94, 95, nothing all the way up to 2019. It just only makes sense, really. Yeah. You know, just uh, beefing up stuff that they probably should have had in there to begin with. Right, right. Yeah, and <laughs> you end up to get a laugh out of those four headshots uh, all the way in the lower right, which is supposed to represent the future. Oh, uh, right. The, the, <laughs> the Chase Lawler Manhunter, uh, Jack Knight Starman, uh, Jared Stevens Fate, and uh, Red Tornado to represent the Primal Force team. Uh, well, one out of four ain't bad. <laughs> So that'll be that'll cost you twenty four ninety nine if you want that hardcover. Uh, so that's obviously something that's crisis related. Are we good on that one? Should we go on? Oh, sure, sure. Okay. So then we get to November of twenty eighteen. This was uh, the first of three deluxe edition companions to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis on Infinite Earths companion deluxe edition hardcover volume one. And they are billing this as collecting um, tie-ins, uh, a few pre-crisis monitor appearances, mm -hmm. just a few. Um, a lot of this material ha has not shown up in any other collection. And I hesitate to say it's complete. It's <laughs> not it's it's not it may be all of the bannered tie-ins. There are also some unbannered tie-ins, right. um, but if you're someone who you don't want to go shopping through the back issue bins, these are pretty good. There's two of them out so far, and a third one just recently solicited that we'll talk about. Um, and if you're a crisis completist and you don't want to go shop in the back issue bin, yeah, I would say now it's a little pricey. It's $75. Yeah. Where I think you could find these issues much cheaper, probably. <laughs> it just uh, takes a little bit of uh, extra personal effort. Yeah. Um, but what did you think about uh, what did you think about what's in the collection so far? Any, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, uh, I have a it's, few. It's these. interesting that they started with DC Comics Presents number 78, because that's, that's, that's the leadoff. And right. that's, that's one of those uh, pre-crisis monitor appearances you mentioned. Sure. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the one that uh, leads us directly into the opening pages of Crisis number one. Yeah, they say it at the end of the issue, right? Yeah. Yes, and and I, let us turn our attention to Earth 3. Yeah. So maybe, I guess that's probably why they included that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, okay. That is 
it's a good, good, good sequencing on their part. And uh, then they bundle together all the, I mean, they're not going in strict chronological order here, just like a sampling from each series crossed over into, uh, rather they're uh, lumping together all the crossovers from a given series. Uh, in in each in in the in the volume in which that series appears, so instead of just um, a couple of All Star Squadron crossovers and then like one or two from other series within that same time frame, and then moving forward in time that way, we get all of the All Star Squadron crossovers, uh, which happen to be issues fifty through sixty, a full eleven issues. Yeah, that's because All-Star Squadron is one of those ongoing DC series that was most impacted by Crisis, mm-hmm. after all. And um, and then as you note here in your notes, Peter, uh, the, the last uh, four of those, 57, 58, 59, 60, they're not bannered as Crisis crossovers, um, but uh, they are very much impacted by the fallout from Crisis. Because uh, 60 is kind of where we lead up to where the, imp- the, the effect of Crisis and the merging of Earths and timelines finally... I mean, it was held at bay by a character called Mechanique, who was improved, kind of based on the uh, female android from Fritz Lang's film Metropolis. And Roy Thomas had fun with her and stuck her in there. And then we're told that she used some power of hers to hold back the uh, reality rewriting wave of crisis entropy or whatever uh, that was uh, retroactively wiping out all the uh, parallel Earths. Um, held that off just in time for Roy Thomas to finish what he had to say in issue 60. And then finally, whoop, there's never been retroactively. There's never been an Earth to. There's never been Earth to Batman or through Superman, etc. Um, and then we kind of proceed into the future of the the future of the past, uh, you know, where, where Roy Thomas explores to a limited degree in the Young All Stars series uh, what uh, the golden age of DC heroes was like without an Earth two on which to be set. Um, so they, so that that's a big chunk of Roy Thomas. Uh, 40s by way of the 80s retro goodness, even including a two page essay. Uh, to introduce uh, the, the, those reprints by Roy Thomas himself, yeah. uh, which um, doubtless we can say a couple things about here in a minute. Um, also including a couple issues of Fury of Firestorm and uh, five Green Lantern issues. And uh, those are preceded by uh, uh, status quo mini-essays by Bob Greenberger, who is an important and often uh, undermentioned uh, crisis participant because uh, um, Marv Wolfman was writer-editor, but he was associate editor under Wolfman and uh, also uh, helped with uh, some of the plotting and uh, did a lot of the research. Correct. Sort of like the go-between between um, between the creators of Crisis and the other editors and writers Mm. um, throughout the DC universe. Right. He was kind of like a liaison and tried to get as many people on board, like a creator wrangler. (laughs) And then also included in the issue, uh, a new Marv Wolfman, I- Marv Wolfman intro from 2018, as Adam mentioned, uh, an essay by Roy Thomas on All-Star Squadron, and then those mini-essays by Robert Greenberger, and then a timeline by Greenberger, which, uh, again, I don't have this hardcover, and I couldn't find it online, uh, any images, so I don't know what that timeline mm. consists of. Mm. Tantalizing possibility. Yeah. yeah. So if anybody has that companion volume one, you should send it along. Uh, pictures of that <laughs> well, last, right? right. Yeah. Don't send the volume. No, Just not the volume. <laughs> but if, if you could somehow scan it uh, for us, we we would appreciate that very much. So two things we are gonna. I have a few more notes on if you if you do as well. Um, oh yes, Wolfman's intro, the mm-hmm. Wolfman's intro. <laughs> um, this was where he mentions that. 
Although Crisis has been reprinted many times, this is the first time all the crossover stories have been reprinted since their original publication back in 1985. Um, I think he's correct if we go by the bannered ones. I think it's going to have all the bannered ones. Um, but there are some things that are miss things that are missing. Um, because there's some like random issues in some of the titles where even though they came after a bannered crisis tie-in, they still kind of are part of the crisis tie-in concept, you know, but I, I see his point. I don't think we, I, I don't think we have yet to get any collection that has ever had everything pre post bannered, whatever. But I think he's right more or less for this, uh, for these three volumes. Yeah. And, uh, his statements may not be correct to the letter, but uh, yeah. I see his intent in making them right. and, and agree with it. Yeah. Um, did you have anything from his intro? Uh, yeah, small list, actually. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, I thought it was cool. that he, he mentions the fact that the uh, original embryonic idea for Crisis took shape while he was making his way to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. for a convention. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the Crisis was born here in our home state. Mm-hmm. I think we talked. I think you even mentioned that before another interview we read, somewhere along the way. It, that it does kind of feel like Philadelphia or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just cool that there's a Pennsylvania connection yeah. to all of this. So it's like he got the idea from, and this is something that he's mentioned many times. A letter writer wrote into Green Lantern, which he was editing at the time, and said, uh, "This uh, the DC continuity is too confusing. All these parallel Earths, you should." simplify it and uh, Wolfman just kind of non-committally agreed and then the more he thought about it the more committal his agreement became and then as he made that fateful train ride out of Pennsylvania the idea took shape and then he pitched it to his upper ups at uh, to his superiors at DC and uh, and history was uh, began um, okay he gives us uh, his list of three things that he set out to impress on readers uh, which seem pretty much like three of the same point, really. It's, it's, it's just that the, the, what he wanted to impress on readers was that this series was going to matter. It was going to have a long-lasting, real, permanent, and far-flung impact on DC Comics. Um, see, since this is a collection of crossovers, it's appropriate that Wolfman acknowledges all the help, and also lack thereof, that he got from uh, other people at DC. It seems like just about everything that uh, you floated to me for, to read for this episode, Peter, but between this and a couple of the fan press articles we'll be talking about later on, Wolfman is always careful to mention that uh, he's not unilaterally going about this uh, revamping of the DC universe. He ins- insists that he's not acting uh, without uh, supervision. Um, he, everything had to be taken to uh, Dick Giordano and Jeanette Kahn for approval, and he secured as much help and input as he could squeeze out of his fellow writers and editors just to make sure that they didn't feel like they were being victimized by all of this. Give them a chance to participate, in, including Roy Thomas, as we'll see in a minute. Which I think is a point that people forget. I think they forget that about corporate commentary. I'm going to get on a little soapbox right now, because <laughs> there's been several events that have gone... Uh, recently, too, where right away they either want to attack a writer or they want to say, you know, they want to feel like these comics don't exist in a company, from a company, you know. And um, Readers, these these are corporate comics. Events are not made out of the forehead of a writer and an artist, <laughs> and that's it. You know, you have the bean counters, you have marketing. I think they even, one of these articles even mentions something about marketing mentioned something and they were like that's a great idea you know um so i just think we need to remember that you know as great as this was it was 
a company event, mm-hmm. you know. It was a massive collaboration. Yeah. And whether we agree with some of the the outcomes, that's different. That's a different story. But no writer, no artist, no creator can if Watchmen can can be changed, if Dark Knight Returns had some kind of editorial, you know, fingers in it, everything is going to have that. Mm. So I just wanted to say yep. that real quick. Yep. And that corporate overdetermination you're talking about has only gotten worse as time has gone by. Pro- maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know what the, I know, you know, we don't work in that field. So, mm. you know, I, I just feel like people think that these comics, they're not created in a, in a committee, but they mm. are. Comics are created in a committee. And these events, what well, I think uh, <laughs> on Twitter, somebody mentioned, oh, okay, so I was, I was just on a podcast called um, DCOCD. And what they're doing is they're going through all the DC events, one episode per event, just giving an overview. Um, so I was on for the time in between Identity Crisis and Infinite Crisis, the oh, countdown with so. the four miniseries. And, yeah, I mean, it, I love it. It's a great Great time for oh, DC Oh, I know, yeah. I know. And that's, uh, that's about when uh, uh, Comic Geek Speak was getting off the ground. Yeah. And, uh, remember what great energy there was around DC fandom at that right. time. And uh, what they do is they then give points for certain criteria, and then they rank all the events. They have like this ladder or whatever. So they, they posted something on Twitter about Genesis. <laughs> and Paul Kupperberg, I guess, was either the writer or editor. No, he's the editor, I think, of that, or was. I, I want to say Byrne was uh, the was the right. writer. Okay, on that. right. So Paul Kupperberg must have had uh, must have been on for like editor. editor yeah, he was know. he was kind of dabbling in the uh, fourth world corner right. of the DC at that time. And and he responded by saying something like, "Oh, the horror, the horror." <laughs> <laughs> Even he says that. Right. Like, you so, know, there was there were problems there. Yeah. So I so I think they freely admit you know or, or they know they know when these things go south right and uh clearly he felt that way so i thought that was an, an interesting um when i saw that i was like oh that's funny see they know they know what history is and they know mm-hmm. what they have to do and some things work and some things don't and then they go oh, okay let's go to the it's, next so. it, it's fun when enough time passes that they can go on record as saying that was a cluster f right right <laughs> So, yeah, all right, just a course. little bit of a tangent there. Yeah, but it's, it's funny you bring that uh, that point up at this point in time, though, Peter, because just crossing back over to what's been going on on the Comic Geek Speak podcast mm-hmm. regularly these days, um, we, we talked about Heroes in Crisis and uh, the many problems we had with that miniseries, mm-hmm. and we did our best to lay all the blame at the feet of corporate for that, as opposed to writer Tom King, who's, after all, a friend of ours. Right. Um, and uh, actually, a lot, of, a lot of our listeners uh, took us to task for being too easy on Tom. Well, I mean, some, they some... might have a point too, because sure. as you say, they, these are corporate comics, and they are created by committee, and the editorial editors meddle sometimes a little more than they ought to. Yeah. But you know, the, some some of the blame has to be laid at the feet of the creators in the end too. Right, because I mean, if they're if they're getting some of that feedback, they what they have to do is then they have to make it work in the story, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Like I, I feel like. I feel like we we want the best for these books. And we forget that so do the creators. You know what I mean? Um, the creators want the best for them. Oh, sure. And sometimes some things just get out of the way uh, or get out of hand or get out of their way. Um, but I think when I see people online lay the blame at the feet of one person, I'll pick Dan DiDio. Like, that's still going. People <laughs> to this day are still like, Very oh, popular scapegoat. come on, like, grow up, you know? like I've been guilty of that myself. Yeah, we all have. But, I mean, I feel like... 
we have a lot of, this is the danger of social media these days because we get to see a lot of what's going on in the background. And I really wish sometimes we don't, you know? <laughs> so, all right. I, I agree. Yeah. And, you know, talking about this crisis stuff is kind of a nice little flashback to the simpler time when there was like almost nothing in the way of uh, well, fan press and uh, transparency of right. the creative process. Right. It's just the stuff magically appeared as though manna from heaven on the, <laughs> the, the comic uh, shelves and spinner racks of the nation. Yeah. And we just uh, accepted them for what they were and uh, kind of enjoyed not knowing <laughs> how the sausage is made. Ignorant bliss, ignorant bliss. Uh, so I interrupted your points there. So I think you were on your... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. So uh, you're talking of the crossovers. Uh, yeah, Wolfman actually, in this intro to the companion volume one, he, he talks about the Red Sky crossovers and how that was... He admits that that was created you know, specifically as a kind of opt-out cop-out uh, like a minimum commitment way for uh, skeptical creators to tie their book into crisis without really like, wading in all mm-hmm. the way. Just like, oh, here, th- th- there's the red skies and the weather phenomena and stuff happening in the background. Okay, back to what we're doing. You know, just not to derail uh, the creators' already placed plans for their series. You know, a way for them to be a part of crisis or at least acknowledge that crisis is happening without you know going right. in whole hog. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to. That's actually what this this type of episode is about. Is is I want to when we get to those kind of tie-ins because that's been another sort of uh, historical comment about crisis tie-ins. Oh, they're all red sky tie-ins, and yeah. that's it. And it's like, well, not really, yeah, you know. And not I, all of them. Not, no, not nearly all of them. And some of them, if they were red sky tie, what I think people are confusing those tie-ins with is um, they're not necessarily not necessarily the bannered tie-ins, they're the books leading up to the beginning of the actual crisis. So if readers, uh, listeners, if you remember, crisis number one takes place in the DC universe in July of 1985. It was meant to be a couple months later than where their regular books were at at the time mm. in continuity, right? right? So that allows the storylines currently going on in the other series right. to play out and catch up. Right. So until, but, but before they caught up, there were some red sky moments, you know, but they weren't bannered tie-ins. They were just <laughs> acknowledging that it was coming. Right. Rumblings on the horizon. Yeah, and I think that's what some people think of when they think of the tie-ins. They go, oh, it was all about the Red Skies. It's like, well, yeah, they were, but is that any different than when Thor opened the casket of ancient winners and all the Marvel Universe had to deal with winter all of a sudden? You know. So I think they get confused with what's an official tie-in, what was the lead-up in the books to the tie-ins, and what is like the unofficial bannered tie-in. So that's one thing I'm really going to look look at when we right. do all these things. So yeah. it's, it's not that um, they were all... There were just degrees of, of right. entanglement with the crisis here. Correct. And really, yeah, Wolfman said that the original plan was for there to be like... Uh, <sighs> A sequence of, of signs of the apocalypse, if you will, like, like first the red skies, then we'd see like extreme weather phenomena and showing up in various DC series, then the skips in time and space. Um, I don't think that uh, progression between symptoms ever really uh, manifested in, in the in the in the crossovers too much. Right. He tried, you know, there were interoffice memos, there were master boards set up, but it's just a hard thing to co- uh, coordinate, especially when not everybody working at DC even wanted this to happen. Right. There were some who actively campaigned against it, which is yeah. another thing that more that uh, Wolfman mentions yeah. in this intro. Quote, hell, many campaigned against it, unquote. <laughs> so, yeah. 
And uh, he ends up his essay by giving special thanks to Bob Greenberger, quote, for his calm and steady professionalism. And it would take nothing less than that to, to weather the storm that was crisis. Um, and uh, he opines that, quote, to date it has not been beaten nor equaled, end quote, as a, a massive uh, reality restructuring event of its kind. Often imitated, never duplicated. Yeah. I've been I've gone on record saying Blackest Night is is pretty damn good as a as a corporate crossover in the in the sense of these grand crossovers, you know, when it comes to like merchandising, merchandising tie-ins, <laughs> having one artist on the entire book, which Perez can't even well, I mean he can say, but his inkers were all over the place, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, I, I I noticed that too when Wolfman said that. I was like, well, that's okay, okay maybe. For what you say is correct, for like reality, you know, yeah. Yeah, what was his actual wording there? I don't think he threw that in. He, oh, I have it here. He says, uh, I believe it not only holds up as a really solid company-wide crossover, let alone the first of its kind, but to date it has not been beaten nor equaled. Now, if he's laying it at those feet, I'm going to have to sort of, I still give it to Blackest Night, but if you throw in the whole continuity sh- shifting thing, mm. sure, yeah. sure, then it's the crisis. But that's my own personal thing. Yeah, it's... Much uh, smaller field of competition when you narrow it down that way. Yeah, too. really. Yeah. But yeah, and I, I'd like to agree with you about uh, Blackest Night, but uh, to be honest, I haven't read much of it yet. Okay. <laughs> so just uh, wait a few years. Yeah. Also celebrating its tenth anniversary. <laughs> Real two thousand nine. Yes. Ah, look at you. <laughs> um, is that it for the Wolfman's intro? For Wolfman's intro to that companion, yeah. Okay. Um. And then let's go to the Roy Thomas one. Oh, by all means, yes, because that's that, that was very interesting to me. I only have two here that, um, and I'll throw it to you. So he says, mostly by coincidence, the mini landmark 50th issue of All-Star Squadron would come out at the same time as Crisis Number 1. That is not correct. So his memory's not helping him on that. Um, All-Star Squadron 50 is cover dated October 85, Crisis number one is cover dated April eighty five, hmm. so uh, I think his I think probably what he was saying thinking was that it was going to happen in the middle of the crisis. Mm, yeah, not there's no way he could have written Crisis number um, All Star Squadron fifty when Crisis one came out because he wouldn't have had that information. I mean, uh, unless he was seeing original artwork and scripts, it hadn't shipped yet. So how would he? recreate firebrand's entrance into the crisis um with harbinger if he hadn't read it yet you know what i mean <laughs> so that's that's a a little maybe memory glitch there yeah, and even roy the boy is only human and he's sure, sure. Well, what is he like uh, 75 or something by now yeah probably um and then the only other thing i thought was kind of interesting was the first chapter of all-star squadron 50 which was called, uh, the entire story was called Crisis Point. The first chapter was called Shanghai into Hyperspace, and I just thought that was a, an interesting use considering DC's use of hyper-time. Um, um, so Mar- uh, Roy Thomas took all these old Golden Age stories where the various members of the JSA got rocketed off into space to all of our different planets within our solar system by the Nazis. He took all that, and instead of, throwing them out into our solar system, they went to alternate dimensions. <laughs> so that's why there were just happens to be people on all of these planets, right. aliens. So they went and, like to the Venus of Earth 4 or the right. Saturn of Earth X, et yeah. cetera. 
and uh, and he called it, uh, sh- you know, Shanghai into hyperspace. So I thought that was interesting. It's kind of like a primordial use of that term, even though it's not the right term, but it's kind of the same concept in a way, a little bit, a little tiny bit. Yeah. So those, that's what I pulled from his essay. What did you have? Uh, well, uh, uh, Shanghai and hyperspace uh, came up in my list also. Just uh, cool that he took it, – it, it's, it's what Roy did so well. It's what he enjoyed so much about writing that series, which he also says in this essay. If he goes on record as saying this is his favorite series, his favorite thing that he's ever done in comics and to this day. And that makes me glad to hear him say that because it's also my favorite thing that he's ever done in comics. It's one of my favorite series ever. And it's it's the very first that I ever completed a, a run of in, in back issue form. Um, so I'm glad that he feels as fondly about it as I do. Not that I really doubted that too much. Um, yeah, so the Shanghai, his essay is pretty much just a historical recap, which is what Roy does again, uh, talking about all the different things that he was doing in these like, eleven issues of All Star Squadron uh, that follow in the reprint volume. Uh, you know the. Uh, the events of issue number 50, uh, where he finally brings all the uh, quality comics, Golden Age characters that he'd introduced on Earth 2 and shunts them over to Earth X so that they're there where they need to be when, uh, as we jump forward in time to the, that 70s Justice League arc where they were introduced as the Freedom Fighters. So Roy Thomas reveals that they were all originally Earth 2 natives and then they just migrated to Earth X to help fight the Nazi war machine and they ultimately fail. So that's something that Roy had been planning to do for some time and he's kind of... Uh, in hurry-up mode here to, to get it done while there's still a multiverse in which to do these things. And he talks about how there's another crossover between um, the Golden Age Marvel family from uh, from the old Fawcett comics on Earth-S, now, as, as mentioned in the spotlight on uh, Shazam and the Bronze Age episodes that we just finished on, on CGS proper. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the Earth-2 Aquaman, which is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> Golden Age retcons that Roy executed here. He, was, he mentions that he was actually asked by some editor or other not to bother introducing an Earth-2 Aquaman since he's going to be retroactively wiped out of existence shortly anyway. But Roy just kind of scoffs and says, okay, I'm going to make extra sure I put that Earth-2 Aquaman in there now. <laughs> and I say, good for you, Roy. You know, just gather Earth-2 roses while you may. Um, and he talks about that the whole mechanique thing that I mentioned earlier and that, that damned photograph <laughs> in the late issues of um, of All-Star Squadron. There's a, a group photo taken of all the different uh, members of All-Star Squadron, the Earth-2 characters. And then at the end of issue number 60, you see the, the, the time wave goes through and we get a second look at that photograph and we see that it's changed to reflect the fact that uh, the Earth-2 versions, like the duplicates of characters like Superman, Batman, etc., including Aquaman, no longer exist and they've been replaced by a bunch of Earth-X characters that never went to Earth-X, since there never was an Earth-X. And uh, Roy complains that even that wasn't quite uh, the, 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 the com- most complete and accurate uh, visual statement of the changes that have been made, because he would have liked to see some Golden Age, non-Marvel family Fawcett characters stuck in there, like Bullet Man and so forth. Um, but yeah, so, so he it gets kind of wistful, this essay of his. He goes on record as saying, quote, I'll admit I would have preferred Crisis had never been published. Again, as if we didn't know. And uh, he concludes by saying, please permit me a moment of silence for my beloved All-Star Squadron. And that's your (laughs) lead-in. Right. (laughs) He lays it out there, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and he also mentions along the way that uh, he was promised that uh, he would be allowed to continue. He was one of the most uh, ardent and... uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, I can't, 
alacritous, possibly, just willing participants. Uh, one of the gladdest and most uh, prolific contributors uh, right. in a, a crossover-wise to this whole crisis project. He, he provided tons of input, particularly as uh, the usage of Earth 2 goes. Uh, and he was promised, you know, uh, guarantees were made that were eventually rendered uh, no longer operative, quote-unquote, um, that uh, he would be allowed to continue doing All-Star Squadron on Earth 2. Like, uh, it's... Earth 2 and its history would continue to exist in the past, but once you got up to 1985 in the timeline, suddenly Earth 2 would blink out of existence and only a few people would remember it. But I guess somewhere along the line, it was decided that was too complicated and um, Earth 2 was indeed retroactively done away with and would no longer exist at any point in the timeline, nor would it ever have existed at any point in the timeline, um, even to the point that nobody remembered that it was around. Okay. And, and this was... Constantly being renegotiated, apparently. Just plans for how they were going to handle the changes that were made and who, which characters in story would remember the change. Like, who remembered what? And then in the end, I guess they just decided to be safe about it and obliterate everything and just, uh, like, only Psycho Pirate and maybe Harbinger remember that there had ever been a multiverse. Yeah. And that's not at all what Roy had been promised. And, and to his credit, he's not too bitter about it yeah. here, you know, <laughs> 30 years later. So all of that from the Crisis on Infinite Earths Companion Deluxe Edition Hardcover Volume 1. Yep. <laughs> Just the, the text pieces for crying out loud. <laughs> and by the way, that is under a cover recreating, or not recreating, uh, uh, um, showcasing All-Star Squadron 50 with some slight changes of the background and color, I think. But, um, you know, if anybody's probably still getting royalties, it's Roy Thomas from, from the Crisis. Well, I hope so. Yeah. So, then we moved to April 2019, just a few months ago, and we got the second volume, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Companion Deluxe Edition Hardcover Volume 2. This one under a cover, um, re again, another recoloring of New Teen Titans, the Baxter Series, Issue 14, where... You know, All-Star Squadron 50, great. It has Harbinger right in the middle. It's got the Earth 2 characters around. Totally makes sense. New Teen Titans 14, although it is a crisis-bannered tie-in. Mm -hmm. And it is Perez artwork. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, no, I think the cover's Barreto. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my mistake. Well, you would know better yeah. than I. Um, it's the start of the storyline where Starfire uh, and Nightwing and Jericho go to Tamaran. Hmm. where she is going to marry some random Tamaranian, you know, for the glory of the Empire. Um, and they are getting, in the, on the cover, they're getting pulled onto the ship. So it's not even a crisis-related image, whereas um, New Teen Titans 13 is. It's sort of all of them running towards the viewer, and then there's a lot of crisis stuff in the background, you know, red skies, lightning, very... Similar to the events of issue number three, where they're in New York and trying to stop the madness with the outsiders. Mm, yeah. So it's an unusual cover. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange choice, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially when you look at what's inside the cover, uh, inside the hardcover. So this volume collects Detective Comics 558, which is not a bannered crisis crossover. DC Comics presents 86, Swamp Thing 44, The Losers Special, Legends of the DCU Crisis on Infinite Earths, a special that came out years later. Yeah, like uh, 
10 years later? Yeah. It was, yeah, mid to late 90s. Infinity Inc. 18 through 25 and Annual 1, Justice League of America 244, 245, and as I mentioned, New Teen Titans 13 and 14. Um, yeah, so you have the image up there uh, of yeah. the... Uh, and you're absolutely right. It is Barreto with inks by Romeo Tango. Yeah. So that's... Well, I guess the background has the red skies and, you know, I guess that could... But that's not... And that's not Crisis. <laughs> They're getting pulled. You can see the ship up above. So yeah, that's, and it's not the monitor ship either. This no. is, as you said, this is just Tamaranian politics happening. Yeah. Here. Which which tie-in would you have picked as a cover? Do you think? I hmm. think I I think I know which one I would have picked. But uh, the selection here, I'd probably go with uh, DCCP eighty six. Which was which one? I uh, think that's Superboy Prime. Let's look that up. Um, I wondered if that was maybe the Supergirl Black Star story. Mm. You wouldn't want the losers on there? Is that too random, do you think? Um, yeah, by far. Yeah. Okay. And besides, it's one of the uh, least uh, <laughs> uh, least authentically crisis-related tie-ins. Because, yeah. well, they gave it to Kaniger to write. Right. And, you know, I, I didn't know who Robert Kaniger was when I first read that uh, tie-in, but knowing it now, it makes a lot more sense why that one-shot had... As little to do with actual crisis events as it did. Yeah. I understand why they didn't pick New Teen Titans 13, because that's the cover of one of the trades for New Teen Titans itself. So I guess maybe they didn't want it to be duplicated somewhere else. Um, but I guess that's why they went with... Ah, uh... Uh, you got me again, Peter. You're right. It is the uh, Superman, Supergirl team up with Black Star in the background. Yeah, I, I th yeah, I think Superboy Prime might have been eighty-seven. Yeah, I would. Uh, that one's at least. Well, I don't know. Well, that's why we're not in the job of marketing, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one of the Infinity Inc. Uh, issues. You know, the the last parallel world story, which or parallel Earth story, which I'm pretty sure is what Roy Thomas decided to call that. Mm -hmm. It's part of the crossover between Infinity Inc. and the new uh, Detroit Bunker Justice League. So, um, I didn't really have any notes for that one because, again, I didn't, I, I wasn't able to see if they had an intro or anything. Do you have any thoughts on? Uh, yeah, no, in, uh, no notes here either. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Did I saw some sample pages um, and uh, it would appear that uh, there there aren't any lengthy essays in this one, just the little uh, status quo mini essays by Bob Greenberger. Right. Here, I'm going to show you. What What do you think of? Uh... Justice League 244 as a, the one with the steel versus steel, the future versus the past. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's something, but... Uh... <laughs> At least it's not another Earth 2 title. Like All-Star Squadron 50 was Earth 2. This is a little more Earth 1-centric, hmm. but... Granted. Yeah. Oh, well. Like I said, we're not the ones making those decisions. <laughs> if I was an editorial or something, I would have been like... Guys, you can't use that. Anyway, um, all right. We, well, let's let's move to the third volume, even though it's upcoming. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, the companion hardcover, volume three, is just solicited in the July previews, and that'll ship. Uh, I'm not sure when it'll ship actually. And this one will cover Emesis 13, Blue Devil 17 and 18, Wonder Woman 327 through 329, Swamp Thing 46, Legion of Superheroes 16 and 18, 
Superman 413 through 415, Justice League Annual 3, DC Comics Presents 87, 88, 94, and 95, and Omega Men 31 through 33. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be released on September 25th, according to what I've just clicked on over here. And the, if this is the cover image, yeah, that's, it's, it's the cover image to what I think is DC Comics Presents number 95, which is though the one that uh, features the cover blurb that says it's a post-crisis blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first uh, DC Comics to specifically use that phrase in its marketing. Um, and it, it, it's all about uh, Pariah, Harbinger, Lady Quark, and they meet a supervillain called Lord Volt, whom Lady Quark uh, thinks might be the post-crisis incarnation of her lost husband from Earth-6, Karak. Yeah. And this, under this cover by George Perez, uh, again, given a different background, given some new coloring, it's pretty, I, I actually, I think it's great. I think it's a great um, use of that image for this uh for this collection. So so that was a new bit of information that as I was compiling my notes uh, uh, and they released the solicitations just about a week ago, I was like, oh, great, we can talk about that too. So there you go. And I was wrong again. It's the cover to DC Comics Presents number 94. <laughs> Numbers. Bah. That, those were never your favorite. Numbers, I, I remember from the old yeah. Stump the Rios days. Uh, yep, I can perform operations murdered. on them, but I don't ask me to remember them. <laughs> Pants always laughed at me. Yeah. Math major. So there you go. If my notes are correct, um, that should be the three volumes should collect all the bannered crisis issues plus some extras, but it's it, it's not necessarily still complete. Um, so I guess we should talk about what may be the closest thing to being complete is again upcoming. This was uh, it's in stores November sixth, twenty nineteen, maybe. It's already been solicited. The Crisis on Infinite Earths Mega Box. It's going to have a whole slew of hardcovers. Not only is it going to have Crisis on Infinite Earths, a collection of that, and um, and most of these tie-ins that we've talked about, but under sort of like different titles. It's also going to include all the Crisis on Multiple Earths trades, oh. volumes one through six. All right, and uh, some of those later ones are very hard to find these days. And that collects all the annual Justice League of America, Justice Society of America team-ups, and mm-hmm. maybe there might be some other stuff in there, too. I'm not sure. Yeah, but... All those Crisis on Earth blank stories that yeah. uh, inspired the title Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. So you got six volumes of that, and then you have like other hardcovers titled All-Star Squadron, which collects all the All-Star, Squ- All-Star Squadron issues. Green Lantern, which collects all the Green Lantern tie-ins, plus Legion of Superheroes, plus a Mega Man. So kind of like uh, future sci-fi kind of books. Your Justice League hardcover, which collects Fury of Firestorm, Detective Comics, Wonder Woman, and New Teen Titans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's just, they just basically are repackaging a lot of what we just talked about into one giant $500 <laughs> mega box that I, I was, even at DCBS discount, I was like, I ain't getting that. No. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful uh, chunk of colored pulp, but uh, yeah, I mean, you and I both already have all of this. Right. In some format or another. One of the hardcovers is called Behind the Crisis. It's, uh, collects, it collects History of the DC Universe 1-2, 
one and two. Pre-crisis appearances of the Monitor. That would be interesting to see if they actually got them all, mm-hmm. because we're going to talk about one in, later on in this episode. Yeah, that even we missed. And behind-the-scenes material and more, so... Yeah, true completism is very difficult to achieve. Right. We're talking about something that is as sprawling as as the crisis story and uh, the other story elements that led up to and spun out of it. This depends on how one is defining the parameters of, of the story, I guess. What really ties into it and what doesn't. Uh, Okay. Want to keep going with uh, books that are coming up that are sure. crisis-related? Yep. Okay, we're going to keep on with the uh, current crisis buzz. So also just solicited uh, along with that third volume of The Companion is DC is starting a line of dollar comics. They're taking a format that they used in the 70s um, that were mostly anthology books. They were priced at a dollar. This time around, they're using them as reprints. And the, one of the first four offerings is Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one, using the Alex Ross, part of the Alex Ross image from the first hardcover they ever uh, put together back in like 97, 8 or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely late 90s. I was in college, so it couldn't have been earlier than 97. Right. Okay. Yeah. And they're also recycling that artwork for the mega box we just mentioned. Oh, right. Yes, yes. So that's, you know, if you've never read The Crisis and you want to read it for a buck, <laughs> if you still like paper, there you go. I don't know what I feel about these dollar comic stuff. You know, Marvel does the whole true believers things, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't buy them. Every once in a while I do. It, do it depends. Okay. If it's an, an older issue that I have no chance of finding in a cheaper format, or if I don't feel like buying a whole collection. Like, for example, they re- around the time of Ant-Man and the Wasp, they reprinted the first appearance of The Living Eraser. Chris and I always joke about that mm-hmm. really silly old Silver Age villain. So I, I, play, I paid a buck for that. Okay, okay. Yeah, so so it, 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 it has its uses, this, uh, this dollar reprint format. And I'm, I'm glad that DC is uh, following Marvel's example here and uh, trying it. Do you remember the old uh, Millennium editions that also did Crisis Number 1? You betcha I do. <laughs> I mean, I didn't buy that one because I already had an actual copy of Crisis no. Number 1. But, uh, yeah, I, I bought a lot of them. Yeah, so did I. I bought the Crisis one, so I guess I shouldn't talk. <laughs> um. And I'll probably buy this dollar one just because it you, know, you can't be complete without it, right? <laughs> Suppose there's going to be a Bob Greenberger text piece in it. I don't know. I don't know. It'd be kind of probably cool. was in the Millennium reprint because all of the Millennium reprints had Bob Greenberger oh. text pieces in them. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and he would have been speaking from firsthand experience in that case because he actually helped to make that comic. Yeah. Well, as as listeners are going to find out, if it has anything to do with Crisis, I usually buy it. So. Mm. Um, yeah, anything about that, or should we move on? Yeah, I think we've said what needed to be said. Okay. Um, the rest of... Let's see. So we have a couple other things. Now, these next few items, some of them have already been released. Some of them will be released. These aren't collections. These are homages to the crisis. For instance... Coming up, uh, it should have been released by now, but I think it'll be it'll come out in the next couple months. From Dynamite, Betty Page Unbound Number Two, featuring a cover by Scott Chandler, uh, which is a cover homage to Crisis Number One, and it is it is legit. It's the first. Uh, I don't know if it's a wraparound or not, but at least the 
main image, uh, you know, I don't know where all these Betty Page images are coming from, but you can see clearly there's a Dawnstar kind of looking character. There's a Betty Page in the corner in green and white and black, just like Pariah. Um, the Earth's exploding in the background. The way they are floating in space is very similar to, to Crisis Number 1. So when I saw that, I was like, well, I don't, I don't care about that title at all, but I'm going to get it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm probably probably ordered about two copies of it, two wow. or three copies, just because I'm dumb. That's dedication. Yeah. So uh, if you know the name Scott Chandler, uh, he did a book, a graphic memoir called Two Generals, uh, also did uh, a book called Northwest Passage, The Three Thieves, and um, he lives in Canada. So, uh, so that's cool. I, lo I love that image. I think it's great. And I was like, I have to have it. <laughs> so I ordered it. And then we can go to, let's see, let's go to Deceased which is a little spin-off uh, miniseries that DC is doing at the moment. It's got nothing to do with Marvel zombies at all. Nope. Um, <laughs> and you it say is, otherwise, you're a dummy. Yeah. It's Tom Taylor, right? Is that the uh, writer, I think? Sounds right. Yeah. So for issue number two, a store managed to have a variant created for their store or website, Comic Hero University. And for Deceased Number 2, it's an homage of Crisis Number 7, done by Arthur Sudom, who was the artist and the madman behind all the Marvel Zombies stuff, right? Ah. And that's why we get a zombified or deceased version of Crisis Number 7. I don't think that's the first... I wonder if maybe... Hmm. I remember he did a few DC ones back during that time just on his own but I don't know if this is something new or if it's a just a you know using it that's probably the first uh, DC zombie piece of artwork he's done that's actually you know, been officially published that's that's good that's good I'll buy that so not only is Superman uh, all deceased but so are a lot of the characters in the background with their faces you know I don't. I don't. I haven't. I haven't read the first issue, so I don't know exactly what's going on with that series. But it's funny because, uh, yes, some of them, as you say, in the background, are pretty clearly zombies, and others pretty clearly aren't. You know, look underneath Kara's head, and you can see um, very alive Robin standing there grinning, which is kind of funny because if that's if that's supposed to be Jason Todd. Oh no, he wasn't dead yet, but he was dead, and then he would. Who knows? Nah, yeah. Maybe it's a pun. That he's smiling when he should be dead. You Jason know? Todd is just a jerk. <laughs> Whether he was alive or not. So, that one will cost you something. I've seen it as low as $15, uh, as high as 30 some dollars. And it was uh, released... Um, yeah, like I said, it's released online or through that store. So, it's kind of like one of those chase variant things store variants that you got to look for. Yep. Comichero.com. All right. Uh, here's a couple of crisis homages that have already been released. Let's go to September 2018. And we have Crisis on Infinite Cerebi by the one and only <laughs> Dave Sim, where he's doing a whole bunch of these uh, Cerebus one-shots. 
and he's recreating covers like the first Wonder Woman and X-Men and, I don't know, a whole bunch of other ones. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just clip-arting the hell out of everything. And he also did one that was an homage of Crisis Number 7. You can see the red sun in the background, people standing in the background, and it's Cerebus. What is he saying there? Who deflated the giant Cerebus balloon? We can't have our parade without it. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Did you see this? Did you order this? Did you? Mm, no. Good. No, well, that, that's your copy then. <laughs> I bought three copies. You could have that one. Thank you, Peter. Oh, it's a one-part <laughs> maxi-series. Yes. All right. Thank you, Peter. Sure. Yeah, it's not quite as on the nose as some of the uh, Crisis number seven uh, uh, riffs we've seen done. You know, Cerebus isn't uh, holding the deflated balloon in his arms and crying to the heavens for right. one thing. He's he's just uh, standing there and complaining. But it does have the logo, and it made me think, even though it says Crisis on Infinite Cere, the Crisis is clearly the Crisis of, and it's got the uh, aardvark heads right, instead that, of the Earth. Right. <laughs> so, I don't know. I guess you can't trademark... Well, you can trademark logos, though, right? So I don't know. I just thought that was well, interesting. Logo. Well, I don't think you can trademark typefaces necessarily. I, I think if you, by modifying the uh, contents, okay, uh, you probably changed it enough. Okay. All right. So there you go. You can keep that if you and if you don't want a, a Dave Sim produced book in your collection, you can throw it away. Oh, sure. <laughs> if I'm, I'm going to have one. It's got, I've, I've got several anyway. Okay. So. I haven't really been ordering his stuff uh, with much gusto or any kind of frequency lately, but if I'm going to have one from recent times, this should be it. Good. Uh, From November 2018, Rick and Morty 44. This might be a late addition to your notes. Um, Is a cover homage, again, of Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven. Now, this one was released exclusively at the Louisville Supercon in November of 2018. Uh, by artist Greg Kilpatrick. Yep. And it's, it makes an awful lot of sense because Rick and Morty does a whole lot of stuff with uh, parallel universes. Oh, I don't know the show, so. Yeah, let's say it's about uh, an alcoholic uh, mad genius scientist and his dysfunctional family, especially his poor hapless little uh, uh, learning impaired grandson, Morty. Uh, whom uh, Rick keeps, uh, he gets drunk and then he drags Morty along on uh, these crazy freewheeling adventures through time and space. He's got a portal gun that he uses that they use to travel from reality to reality. Eventually it's revealed that uh, Rick mainly drags Morty along because Morty's flatline brainwaves help to conceal Rick's <laughs> own distinctive brainwave pattern, hiding him from all the people who are trying to track him down and bring him to justice, mainly other dimensional versions of himself. Like th- there's a whole society of parallel Ricks and Mortys. I forget what it's called, but it's kind of like the supremacy from Alan Moore's uh, Supreme Run. Okay. Except much more twisted and dark and alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. And the other members of the family are characters too, but but then you can see a lot of them standing in the background there on that front cover. So I don't know how I'm going to get a hold of that, but I'm going to have to. Um, and then this is another late edition, November of 2016. Uh, I don't even think this is on your notes. Doom Patrol number three during the whole Young Animal um, imprint by Gerard Way, Nick Darrington. Again, I don't know what the contents of the issue mean, but there's a one-page Crisis number seven homage. Uh, Crisis, and that's to be expected. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's actually pretty clever, the playing with the typefaces here, where uh, the... uh, 
where the number 50 of the 50th anniversary logo is supposed to be in the, in the upper left-hand corner. It's the word so, and then in the blue banner where the maxi-series description is supposed to be. So, imagine at this point... I imagine at this point. You're yeah. having some sort of existential crisis. And we're and on Infinite Earths is supposed to be in the foreground. It says, and that's to be expected. And, yeah. and it just keeps going and going. So, clearly another crisis. Homage. Or another clever Gerard Way uh, DC history bricolage. I uh, was I was going to collect a, some of the young animal stuff, and then I sort of passed on it. Although I did get the Milk Wars trade paperback, which has a lot of fun. Right, that's the Justice the, stuff. the Justice League crossing over with yeah. the Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> so DC Universe and Young Animal sub universe clashing. Yeah, but, I, I have this comic. I'm sure okay. I do. Yeah, it's because I collected this version of. I think that it's been relaunched recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've, I followed this for the first like ten or so issues. Okay, well, I got this one specifically for that crisis. Once I found out there was an homage, I, I had to get it, and then realized, oh look, in the back they're also doing who's who pages. And I was like, God, I got to buy are. all of them now. <laughs> yes, ah. somewhere I've got a little ash can they were giving away at conventions before the first issue came out. There was nothing but little who's who pages. Oh, nice. So. Yes, I do get a little bit of a completist streak in me when it comes to the crisis. I think Gerard Way would probably be pleased to be described as a crisis kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then the last thing we're going to talk about in this segment is even an older, older book. Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest 64. This is from 1985. June of 1985, cover date September 85. And it's a whole bunch of Legion collections, uh, Legion stories collected in the digest format, which were popular uh, back then. And one of the stories is called The Super Moby Dick of Space. So on the cover by Paris Collins and inker Robert Allen Smith is a new you know, cover for that story, and I sent it to Adam. This was kind of the thing that kicked off this entire episode, I think. Yeah, and uh, got <laughs> us back into the studio eventually. Yeah, because if you look at this uh, image, the space whale, the floating bodies, the universe in the background, feels like it could be a crisis number one homage. In a weird way? Yeah, and uh, if we're right about that, if Collins was uh, doing this deliberately, it's probably the first Crisis number one cover homage. Yeah, you're right, yeah. So, you know. And when Peter sent me this image, I I saw what he was talking about immediately. (laughs) Just uh, like he said, the body's tumbling in space, just like the figures on Crisis number one, the way the whale's tail tapers off or shortened uh, to the left of the cover, like that chain of Earths. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the elements are in place. Superboy is almost in the same position as Pariah, Saturn Girl, Brainiac Five floating around in space. Um, who else is in the background? Some other characters that yeah. I can't make out. Legionnaires or Legion support staff. Yeah, that's so. And off to the far left, I, I guess he's occupying the Harbinger spot. Is uh, Lightning Lad with his mechanical arm? Yeah. So that's why I put it last, because I'm not 100% sure, but damn, is it close. (laughs) (laughs) Should track Paris Cullens down and ask. Well, he does a lot of the 
Philly airport shows, actually. Does Every now not? and then, yeah. Yeah, the only place I've ever seen him personally is uh, New York. Okay. And I haven't been up there to a New York con in a couple of years. He might not do those anymore. I don't have this particular issue, but maybe I'll hunt it down and then slap it down on his table and go, that's a crisis image. And he'll say, no, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't about. know what you're talking about. So there you go. There's uh, all your upcoming or recently released uh, direct crisis material kind of stuff. Collections, well, homages. Not all of it. There's a few other. Well, that's, yeah, this is in-story stuff. This is, but I meant sort of like, you know. Stuff you can buy, mm. you know, um, if you haven't read The Crisis or you want to fill out your collection, that could be fun. Okay. Um, this would be a great place to put, like, some kind of commercial on something. <laughs> do, 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 do. Buy some Wawa lemonade. <laughs> so our next segment, um, we're going to jump to... Crisis around the DC universe, the current, more or less, DC universe. Okay, so some more uh, recent crisis homages or references. Yeah, stuff that's a little bit more in story. Um, a little less superficial than what we've just been talking yeah. about. And we have a list here. Uh, I'll just read off the list and then we can go in depth. If I don't think we're going to go super in depth. We're not going to go like into like complete story synopsis and you know all that kind of stuff probably a good idea yeah and i know i've there's probably others that we've missed but um since in the last year or two we've had flash number 50 which was the end of the flash war flash annual two heroes in crisis obviously but it's specifically heroes in crisis number six the ryan sook variant cover uh justice league 22 by scott snyder and company which was Pretty recent. Uh, Young Justice has some crisis stuff. And then if we go into other media, there's been the Elseworlds CW crossover and all of the teases for this fall's Crisis on Infinite Earths happening on TV. <laughs> Amazing. They don't have the budget to do it justice, but uh, <laughs> I, I, all the same, I'm looking forward to seeing what they are able to do. Yeah. So those are the things we're just going to, I don't know. I don't know how, again, I don't know how much we're going to talk about them, but there's the list. What, what do you want to talk about? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, okay, well, the Flash stuff. Uh, yeah, Flash Annual. That, that's one thing I, I was able to dig out of the pile and take a look at last night. Um, yeah, you say there's a one-panel Crisis 8 homage? Correct. So in the, there's this whole thing going on in the, in the Flash books where... Uh, there's a villain that is... Uh, His name is Godspeed. Real name, August Hart. And he is a former co-worker of Barry's who ends up getting speed powers. Right. And he's he's going through and you know making a mess of things. But at the end, there's a hint of an either, ev even greater threat um, that's going to threaten the Flash books for the foreseeable future. And he's that character is from the future. This is the second time we've seen him the other one is in flash 50 and whenever godspeed goes to goes to him there's always like images or well at least in this book there's some images of various flash uh occurrences so we got flash barry allen from crisis number eight flash running from that bullet in final crisis and is that flash rebirth 
I think. Yes, I think that other image is that. Whatever it is, there's two flashes in that image. Yeah, I think that's Flash, and then that should be Wally when he was in that darker Flash costume. So. Hmm. And uh, this could al- uh, the very last image could almost be seen as uh, an homage to the cover. You know, where you see the the Flash, or, or in this case, oh, Godspeed. Oh, yeah, yeah, On the yeah. cover of Crisis Number 8, you see Barry uh, between the legs of the Anti-Monitor. Yeah. And here we see uh, Godspeed bowing down to his master here, and uh, we see him between the master's legs. Yeah. I'm, my early guess here is Cobalt Blue. Well, that's what uh, some people have guessed. Um, he's also using these gauntlet things, which are evocative of John Fox. Right. Right. Um, certainly spinning out of uh, Heroes in Crisis, my my big thought was this is Wally, that they sent him, that they would have sent him to the future uh. to be held in prison, because there's a lot of references in here about oh, I'm going to go after I'm go- the let's see the Flash Flash family will pay for what they did to me, what they did to my family, and by the time I'm finished, there will be no more speeches. Yeah, see, so. that's. That's what uh, got me thinking maybe it was Cobalt Blue, yeah. you know, the whole Thawne family legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, if it turns out to be a parallel Wally, I mean, that's kind of close to what happened on the Flash TV show a couple of seasons ago. Correct. With the, the reveal of Savitar. Right. So uh, have we seen Cobalt Blue in a hot minute? No, I don't think we have. Either. Long time. Yeah. Which is exactly why it's a good thing for the current creative team to pull out of their hat. <laughs> We could also mention that uh, Impulse is pretty prominent here. Correct. So he's uh, another sign of uh, things slipping through the Iron Curtain of Time, separating uh, pre-Flashpoint continuity and post-Flashpoint, mm-hmm. which also takes us back to the aforementioned Young Justice. Right. So if you're reading Heroes in Crisis, there is some Heroes in Crisis stuff in here. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah, if you're uh, reading Young Justice, as Adam said, this is a stepping stone, a small stepping stone for Impulse for that. If you're a Flash reader, it is a, a harbinger of things to come. Um, and wherever this gentleman is, this new villain, he's in like the 25th or 26th century, I think. 25th, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is significant, too, because that's where Zoom came from. Right. Uh, right. Eobard Thawne. Uh, we get these random crisis images. Not only just Crisis on Infinite Earths, but Final Crisis as well. So. Hmm. Uh, and I had to special order that through Golden Eagle because they sold out almost instantly. Of course, they only ordered like two shelf copies. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, let's go back to Flash. Do you have anything else to say about that nope. one now? Well, then let's go back to Flash 50 because that this actually came out before that annual. And this is the end of the Flash War. Again, There's it, it, it predates Heroes in Crisis, but it certainly could have some effect to it, even though, it, like I said, it does predate. I love the Howard Porter artwork. Um, it does feature Zoom. Um, I, I think the reverse, the original reverse Flash Zoom, I think. I, I haven't read it, so. But here we go again, as they're whipping through hypertime, a whole slew of images, including... Oh, uh, yes, that famous uh, progression of... Uh... Diminishing panels of Barry slowly decomposing and turning into an empty costume. And then when we see uh, by the end of it just his, his ring on the floor, that might even be a, uh, crisis number 12, 11 or 12. And then we see other images too. Um, we see some of Wally West as Kid Flash. Uh, this was a... 
Was that like a Elseworld story or um, no? No, no, that's from Continuity. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's from the Mark Wade run. I'm sure of that. I, it, it looks like Wally is sitting there in a wheelchair, grieving for his lost abilities. Uh, I think it's. I think the cover might have said something like, "You are about to witness the most tragic day in the life of Wally West." Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, if Pants were here, he could probably tell us exactly which issue this is from. Yeah. So it's, you know, them spinning through the hypertime. Um, and then this is another one that by the end of the book, um, so there's a bunch of rogues that are from the 25th uh, century, but they're not rogues. They're like the citizens. Excuse me, I think that's where we get um, citizen cold or they're, they're some kind of police force. Um so there's an epilogue in the 25th century. It's Iron Heights Penitentiary, and someone is about to escape. Uh, Iron Heights is the greatest prison in the multiverse. Eobard Thawne built it after he caught its only inmate. If he ever escaped, and then these whole bunch of people die, that inmate is called Inmate Crisis. And the inmate escapes, and he says, Finally, the Flashes will pay for what they've done to me, Worlds will live, worlds will die, and the multiverse will never be the same. Well, that's <laughs> that's really hanging a light, uh, light a lampshade on it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, look at that logo. Looks like a prison gate with a couple of uh, linked Earths in front of it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, that uh, image I was thinking of. That's uh, it's the cover of Flash number seventy nine, and it does not involve Wally in a wheelchair. So okay. I think I was thinking of two different things. Okay. So here again, I mean, this is just their way of using the crisis language to tease the hell out of something. Um, he does have a bulky appearance, like like an anti monitor kind of character, but you know who knows who he is, what he is. So these two little lead tie, little little uh, cameos, little teases are going to affect whatever's going on in the Flash book. So I have my... I'm not a regular Flash buyer, um, although I am buying the recent year one story, um, but I'm going to have to pay attention to it because something is going on. Mm. All right, thanks for the heads up. I'll be paying attention as well. Yeah. Um, and I, too, have not been a regular Flash buyer, but yeah. uh, I went out and grabbed that Flash annual as soon as you tipped me off to it. Great. So... uh. And, oh, by the way, this issue 50 is also Impulse makes an appearance. And I think this one is the first time we see him back prior to that annual. Um, he just makes a, he just pops out of somewhere. And there he is. Yep, big triumphant splash page. <laughs> Wahoo! Not sure if you heard me or not, Wally, but who can? You know, so apparently he's been trying to get Wally's attention from the Speed Force yeah. for a while. Uh, but who cares? Force barriers down, and now the one and only Bart Allen is back. So now he gets to be kind of what uh, Wally had been, you know, as of the DCU Rebirth one-shot a little while ago. Oh, right, sure. Like yeah. Hope for the old guard of readers that uh, you know, the old reality is not so far out of touch or, or out of reach. But uh, Wally hasn't... Uh, been able to bear that burden of uh, embodying hope for everyone. So now uh, someone a little younger and stronger and more energetic, little Bart, gets <laughs> to take that role. So Flash 50 was by Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter. Uh, the annual was Joshua Williamson, but art by Scott Collins. Uh, 
So, uh, anything for that? Shall we move on? Or mm, you? Nope, nothing more for me about Flash number 50. All right. Uh, how about we go to something that is just another sort of, well, it's not an homage, but it's definitely crisis-related. You want to talk about that? Uh, yep, I'm just looking at the cover here, but it's uh, issue number six of the Heroes in Crisis nine-issue miniseries uh, by uh, Tom King, and uh, it looks like the art here was done by uh, uh, Drew Gerrids and uh, Clay Mann. Um, the cover, I mean, this is this is a variant, uh, yep. Peter had said, and, and who drew it? That's uh, Ryan Sook. Ah, all right, excellent. And uh, the whole deal with Heroes in Crisis is it's supposed to be... A, a super a treat a mental health treatment facility for superheroes. It's hidden uh, out in the fields of Kansas. You know, Superman, of course, scouted the location for it, and it's meant to Nebraska. Lo- just oh, it's in Nebraska. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, well yeah. that's significant to Wally because he grew up in Nebraska. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, I beg your pardon, but it's it's out there in the American Midwest anyway, and it's supposed right. to look just like a a, a farm, just like an innocuous little farm with amber waves of grain and all that, and a nice little farmhouse which is actually like the sanctuary where superheroes can go to be treated for mental health disorders specifically PTSD and uh, Wally is one of many superhero characters that go there and interacts with the uh, therapist android staff and uh, the cover, uh, this variant cover to number six is uh, a a file photo uh, from uh, Wally's mental health file it's it's an image uh, it looks like a Polaroid, uh, titled in red marker, Loss of Barry Allen. Uh, Sanctuary file, July 7th, and it's an image of uh, Wally West uh, with a bunch of other DC characters uh, coming in behind him, not quite fast enough to keep up with him, as he runs toward a red-gloved hand reaching out for him, You know, just, just a little too late to stop Barry from disintegrating and becoming one with, uh, <laughs> with uh, time, space, and the speed force. Yeah. And it's a direct uh, link to crisis number 12 when they go back to the antimatter universe of Quard uh, and they're ready to put the beat down on the anti-monitor. And while he gets that little flash mm. of imagery of Barry right. zipping through time. What somehow. I like to call after flashes. Yeah. <laughs> and he chases after him. And then what happens next is he comes upon the psycho pirate trying to pull the Flash costume out from all the Right, rocks. his yeah, psycho pirate's mind has snapped, he's delusional, and he's trying to revive a co- an empty costume. Yeah. So all of these variants, uh, um, and they're not, um, they're not chase variants, they're just sort of alternate covers. They're not any more expensive than the origi- original cover for Heroes in Crisis. Uh, they're all done by Ryan Sook, at least th- this version, and they all are... Traumatic events in the DC universe. Aquaman losing his hand, Kilowog dying at the hands of Hal Jordan, uh, Superman dying in the Doomsday event, Batman getting his back broken, uh, Wonder Woman snapping Max Lord's neck, and Jason Todd getting beaten by a crowbar. Literally to death. Yeah. Um, And this is just... uh, uh, the one for Wally, since he's one of the main characters in the book, and uh, and, and an obvious crisis reference. So I mm. thought, you know, should really bring that in. So if, again, I, I'm a completist. I actually prefer, I think these Polaroid images are really great, um, but I, when I saw that one, I was like, oh yeah, definitely going to get that. <laughs> that. That's a great cover. Yep, and I think I ended up getting the same cover, albeit entirely by accident. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. The universe knew. Adam. They just yes. knew which one to send. All me. the universes knew <laughs> which one I should have in my collection. Um, 
And then, is that it for that? Uh, that's, that's all I had. It's Yeah, it's pretty much just the cover. Right. Yeah. So then, um, these next two, uh, let's see, you'll probably be able to go more in depth with Justice League. So real quick, just uh, Young Justice, this new title from Wonder Comics by Brian Michael Bendis and company. Um, by the way, I mean, I think the whole Wonder Comics line is just great. It was a, a good idea. Yeah, just stellar. Uh, Wonder Twins, Dial H for Hero, Naomi, and uh, the revamping of Young Justice. Just so good. Plus, it has Amethyst in it, which is, come on, of well, course yeah, I'm going to love I knew that would rope you in. <laughs> yes, and, and Ian Levenstein just uh, gushes about this every chance he gets. It's a well-done book. Um, but they are also playing around with uh, some crisis-related language uh, because the main story arc is called Seven Crises. Uh, I have not finished those six issues, six, seven, six issues. Um, so I don't know exactly what the content is, but apparently Bendis has laid out that there have been seven major crises. Mm. And we could probably name three or four of them immediately, but uh, the others may be a little more subtle. Yeah. Uh, do you want to try? Uh, I don't think I want to second guess Bendis. No, I, I mean, okay. So let's uh, let's frame it this way: If you had to pick the seven, though, if you were the editor of that book, because hmm. <laughs> here's the thing about Bendis: I swear he's done it twice now. I swear he just goes to like a DC Comics wiki, finds a list, and goes, "Yeah, I like that," because he did it with uh, uh, in his Superman run, which I'm reading, which is pretty good. He was rattling off names of Kandorians, and they were almost exactly alphabetical order of a list that I found on a DC wiki page. <laughs> and then his new uh, DC Millennium book that's coming out that's going to bring back the Legion of Superheroes, and it's going to bridge the gap between our century and their century, has all of these characters along the way, like Omac, Tommy Tomorrow, um, Batman Beyond, and I found another list that was like possible futures of the DC universe, and it was it's almost the same characters. So I'm going somewhere along the way. He found a list that said here are the seven most important crises, and he's like, okay, sure, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, he's not known for deep organic research, yeah, and especially not where DC is concerned. He's I think he's always been more of a Marvel guy anyway. So what would you what would you call what would you think what would you pick as the seven main crises? In well. The universe? Crisis itself is fairly obvious. Zero Hour, another mm -hmm. big one. Um, Infinite Crisis. Um, Final Crisis, right? Uh, yeah, well, it has the word crisis in the title after all. Flashpoint. Yeah. Hmm. I guess Superboy Prime punching the walls of reality doesn't constitute a crisis in and of right. itself. Uh, other reality restructuring type events... Uh, the Kingdom? Um, the introduction of Hypertime? What about Convergence? Uh, because they did sort of muck around with the... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I had, <laughs> had all but uh, forsworn that event in my mind because it was such, <laughs> such an anti-climax. People were just trying to tell us, you know, it, it's nothing but a fifth-week filler event. Nothing serious is going to come of this. And, and I, in the course of it, I think they tried to completely undo the events of the original crisis off-panel, which... Uh, that'll never... That'll never stick. Yeah. Maybe something related to the multiversity, too. 
Uh, all right. So that's a pretty good. I think that's kind of close. Did they? Let me see if they've. People have talked about yeah flashpoints convergence. Oh, um, there. Some people are speculating Dark Knight's metal because of the whole dark multiverse mm. crisis yep. aspect. And I haven't uh, read enough of that to really know what its uh, ramifications were. Yeah, I don't. Again, I don't know if he's. Li- he might have listed them by the time you you hear this. Mm. Um, but that's those are that's what I would pick. Mm. Yeah, and uh, this is all being related by uh, Gem World characters, right? And Gem right. World uh, exists, after all, in an alternate dimension as opposed to an alternate rea- uh, universe. So it, it's kind of beyond uh, the the scope right. of most of your typical crisis events. So that they would, uh, they'd have a better vantage point to be aware of things like this than any denizen of the DC universe proper, who would have their own personal timelines and memories yeah. revised at the same time these events happen. So it's very very good of Bendis to bring Gemworld in in that uh, in that capacity. Um, I'll admit that I haven't, and I admit this to you and Ian and uh, uh, the, the whole comics reading world, but uh, I have not actually been keeping up with Young Justice either. Um, uh, Ian did uh, allow me to uh, to read his copy of Young Justice number one, and we reviewed it on the air, and I thought it was kind of a messy, poorly structured first issue. Um, but uh, knowing uh, where the story is going here and uh, the... Uh, possible uh, crisis implications it has, um, there is a trade being solicited right now in the most recent previews for uh, the first six issues, and I think I'm going to be buying that. Great. Cool. Yes, I think maybe the uh, mechanical problems with the first issue will be less evident if it's just a part of a, a larger chunk of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that'll be another title to kind of look for. And the other comic on this list, then, is Justice League 22. And I'm going to throw it to Adam because he's read it. I have it, mm-hmm. but I have not managed to read it yet. So let us hear Ooh, your thoughts on that. Yes, it is just dripping with uh, crisis uh, significance here, okay. Peter. It's And th- this is the current volume of uh, Justice League, too. This is the one that's being kind of tag-teamed on by Scott Snyder and uh, James Tynan IV, uh, art by Francis Manipul. Um, and this is part of the larger uh, Legion of Doom arc that uh, Snyder's been doing. Um, you know, he's, uh, the, the Legion has been kind of dipping in and out of the series, uh, like alternate months. Uh, the Justice League is kind of in the middle of a fight with Mix, Mr. Mixius Pitlick, actually, as, as this uh, issue number 22 begins. And we do see a couple of pages of uh, uh, Mira and uh, Will Payton Starman going up against Mixius Pitlick, and then the Legion of Doom swings in to save the day, bringing with them uh, uh, an ace in the hole, uh, the nature of which I will is, is too wonderful for me to spoil for anyone. But uh, anyway, that, that's all we get of that story. And then we jump to another character uh, whom Lex Luthor has been wooing. Uh, she's kind of a primordial figure in uh, DC's multiversal history, uh, or or many multiversal histories. And uh, Lex Luthor has discovered her existence and freed her. Her name is Perpetua. She's going to be fairly important in the DC realm in uh, the coming year. She's going to tie into this whole uh, year of the of the villain thing that's going on. Um, and it turns out that she's kind of like this uh, primordial creator goddess. Um, although she's not a supreme deity, she's identified clearly throughout this story as kind of like cosmic middle management. Like uh, there are higher cosmic beings holding her leash, and she's been assigned by them. You know, just uh, she's like an emissary of the f- the source itself to create a multiverse, a multiverse among several multiverses in the wider omniverse, and the other multiverses we can 
possibly assume are like the Marvel multiverse and uh, and, and other fictional uh, uh, poly realms like that. Um, so she, the first thing she does is create three helpers, and uh, those helpers are uh, <laughs> Marnovu, Mobius, and Alpheus. Uh, Alpheus is. Uh, he's in charge of the the dark multiverse, the dark matter. So he's a very recent creation. But the other two are just the monitor and the anti-monitor. And she creates these. They're they're sort sort of like the in this little cosmological structure she's putting into place here. They're like the three fates. Uh, one of them creates worlds and their inhabitants. Uh, one just kind of uh, watches over them, gauges their progress, protects them from harm, and the third uh, sets the boundaries of their existence keeping foreign presences out, keeping native presences in, and just uh, rendering just, uh, uh, just uh, rendering null and void anything that ventures where it doesn't belong. And uh, But eventually, uh, the Monitor discovers that Perpetua is up to no good, and she's got a dark purpose in mind, uh, at variance with uh, what her superiors wanted her to be doing. Like she's preparing this multiverse of hers for war. So they tattle on her, and uh, they bring in uh, this higher being that appears. It manifests itself as a hawk, which I'm pretty sure is going to tie into things that Snyder's been doing in Dark Knight's Metal uh, with Hawkman and, and that whole legacy. Uh, and uh, as a result, she becomes the first, uh, well, possibly the first. I mean, they're uh, one of the, of the Promethean giants. You know, the, the prisoners of the source wall. And uh, the, her, her superiors then just say, okay, this multiverse is null and void. We're going to cancel it out, and we're going to start again from scratch. And uh, then the, the monitor and anti-monitor are prepared to be reborn into this new reality. The anti-monitor is pissed because his role in this new multiverse is uh, much worse than his role was uh, under Perpetua's reign. Like, right. his, uh, in her regime, he would have—he uh, had— uh, a better, more more positive role to play. And uh, he takes this out on his brother, the Monitor, so he kind of swears, even as they fade out of existence and prepare to be reborn in what we know as the first DC multiverse, he swears revenge. And so, as it happens, they are born on Oa and on uh, the Moon of Quard, respectively, and they immediately uh, seek each other out and start fighting. So there's actually... It's, there's little bits of uh, of recent... Uh, multiversal story innovations, bits of plot that were thrown out there in um, Dark Knight's Metal. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a little throwaway mention of the emotional spectrum, so Blackest Night is represented in there. Um, there's even a couple of things, like there's a mention of the overvoid, so Grant Morrison's thoughts from Final Crisis and Multiversity are sure. represented here. Right. So there, there's lots of little nods to lots of different twists and turns, uh, the story of the shape and nature of DC reality have taken over the years. It's it's a neat little one-issue story, and it, uh, it gives us a little further characterization for Monitor, Anti-Monitor, and their new brother, Alpheus, here. Uh, just their personalities, the roles they play, their relations to one another, and it actually gives us uh, motivation for why the Anti-Monitor hates the Monitor as much as he does hmm. when they first come into being. Interesting. So it, it's a, a pretty great uh, post-Flashpoint prequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. It, it, the title of the story is First Crisis. Hmm. So that's, that's, that's a pretty strong giveaway as if uh, the whole thing weren't a giveaway yeah. uh, as to how closely tied into our subject text Crisis on Infinite Earths that story wow. is. So all you Crisisophiles out there, uh, buy Justice League number 22, read it. It's almost like, it's almost like Crisis on Infinite Earths zero. Yeah, like kind of. Or, or, like, or, or negative three or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, it's uh, it, 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 it's in the vein of the that that lengthy multiversal origin story we got in Crisis Number Seven. Yeah, except it's uh, taking things even further back than that. It's amazing how as we get deeper and farther away from the crisis. I mean, you know, obviously Infinite Crisis, which was the twenty fifth anniversary, right? Or twentieth twentieth anniversary of Crisis, right? Two thousand five. Yeah. Um, Final Crisis. Uh, the the dark the the metal um, event which they wanted to call dark crisis uh, <laughs> has obvious parallels to the original mm. crisis and you layer all this stuff like the orrery of worlds and as you say the the, the yep the or it's mentioned in, in is it, okay. number twenty two um, given given the uh, the monitor a name you know that which they use in this issue. Um, John's Jeff Johns used the anti monitor in his Justice League run, spinning out of New Fifty Two, right? Yep, uh, Dark Side War. Yeah, that, that's where he got the name Mobius, and we find out that he is the Mobius who created Metron's mm-hmm. Mobius chair from New Genesis. And now you have, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Snyder did metal. Excuse me. Do you know why they didn't call that Dark Crisis? By the way, I think. I think Scott Snyder wa- and Greg Capullo wanted metal because of the the name, the the feeling the name gives, right? Like they wanted an event that was crazy, you know. the 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 promo image is Batman with the two axes, so they they just wanted something that was it's, called a Death Clock Crisis. <laughs> I guess they metal really just wanted to separate it a little bit. You know what I mean? Like instead of DC, and we've said this before. Uh, DC constantly going back to the crisis well, which I love, mm-hmm. but it doesn't all have to be called crisis, right? Like, eventually you're going to run out of things to say. It's mm-hmm. like, so how many times can you do Secret War, Civil War, Infinite War, you know, Infinity War over at Marvel? You know, they have uh, World War Hulk. They always seem to have, like, war in the title, right? Like, conflict. So crisis is a very DC thing. I get it. You know, Heroes in Crisis, Identity Crisis, Zero Hour Crisis in Time. Um so I guess they just wanted to say no. Let's it. Yes, it does play on those themes, but can we just name it metal? Like uh, it had. They wanted it to have maybe its own thing hmm. to it. So, and I, I applaud them for sticking up for them. You know, because Joker does say in the story he says something about like, oh, there's going to be a di- dark crisis. Um, and as I said, there's many parallels images. Uh, that reflect back to the crisis, language that reflects back to the crisis. But I'm kind of glad they went with metal. Um, But they can't... What I find interesting is these uh, these writers love to play with it, and they find new ways to play with it. Like, not only just the crisis story, but let's... let's, Now what Scott, Scott Snyder did is, let's go even beyond the story, like before it, like even... Pre-crisis, before pre-crisis history, like that's weird and wacky. It's almost like a Galactus thing of hmm. here's a universe, let's destroy it, and we only have a few people from that universe that cross over into the new one, and suddenly they have new roles to play. Um, I just, it's like how many or, or think of think of metal. It's not the multiverse we know. It's it's not the multiversity map. It's underneath them. Like, they <laughs> like keep, on Stranger Things. They just keep, turn the map over. Yeah, they find new directions to go with the story, which is like, 
how much more can they do? Yep. It blows it my mind. Just keeps growing and spreading organically. Yeah. It's, it's like Morrison always posited, like the the DC multiverse was a thing alive. Yeah, and life finds a way. Yeah, so that's fantastic. I can't wait to read that. And, um, it's going to get to a point where it's just going to be how much I don't know how much more my brain can hold. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, the multiverse may be infinite, but <laughs> our minds are not. Yeah. So that's great. So there you go. Pick up Justice League 22 if you haven't already, if you're someone that wants to dig in deeper. And then uh, we rounded off, as we said, with uh, some TV talk. Again, nothing in depth, no spoilers. I have no idea. I don't watch trailers. I don't know what's coming up. All I know is that there's going to be Crisis on Infinite Earths. Did you see the Elseworlds? Uh, it was months ago, but yes, okay. I did. Yeah, same with me. I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was kind of the same thing. Monitor showed up. You don't know what his motives are. He mm. seems bad, but he might be good, and he's testing them. It's yep. kind of the same he's thing. He appears to be responsible for the ravaging of the uh, 1990 John Wesley ship. Uh, <laughs> flash reality. How great is that? Like, that's taking the crisis, taking their universe, their... All, they could have brought in someone from, like, the Batman Adam West series. You know what I mean? If there are like, any of them left alive. Yeah, that's true. But I thought that was really interesting that they did bring that universe back. They brought his costume back. It's the same freaking actor who's been in the Flash TV series, obviously. Yeah, and playing a few different people. Yeah. Barry's dad, Jay Garrick, Jay Garrick. et cetera. And they, it almost is like they gave it an incontinuity reason of why that series ended is because he blew it up. I just thought that was fun. That was fun. Yeah, and it is, as you said, it's a lot like what the Monitor did in his pre-crisis appearances. Just he seems sort of like a villain, uh, dealing with villains, but in reality he was doing it for benign reasons. And we've, uh, we got teased at the end of that crossover event of what was coming in the fall, and they clearly had the Crisis on Infinite mm. Earths logo. Uh, I have not seen the finales for this season, but I think most of them have some, you know, tease, tie-in or whatever, uh, cliffhanger or whatever to the fall event. Um, and the rumor is that will it merge all of the TV shows so they so they aren't, Supergirl isn't off on her own planet. Will she actually be brought to the same Arrowverse planet like flash and arrow and all that so. it seems extremely likely to me yeah it sort of makes sense you know it's... yeah make it a little easier for the characters to interact right it's the same reason marv wolfman gave mm -hmm. you know like way back at the top of this episode where you read the portion of that intro about it's getting too confusing <laughs> why do we always have to go somewhere to a new planet to go see supergirl when she's on our same network <laughs> <laughs> so why can't they just exist together so maybe this will be their reason we shall see. Yeah. And tell me, tell me that you think uh, the, the, the monitor was perfectly cast. Um, I don't know that actor, but is that how you feel? Well, yeah. yeah. yeah Especially I, visually. Uh, yes, right? uh, LaMonica Garrett, I think, was the guy's okay. name. LaMonica something, anyway. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he looked perfect. Yeah. And they, it was good that they kind of kept this, the, costume the same yeah i was afraid it would just be some dude or maybe even some woman just standing there wearing like a, a leather <laughs> yeah just like a, a black gown or something just very cheap and basic but no they yeah. obviously put a little bit of their uh, uh, properties budget into building that costume yeah and i'm very glad they did yeah 
So, you know, it's going to be an entirely different story, I imagine, but uh, it's I, I, I'm curious to see. You know, I'm not expecting uh, an adaptation of what we've been reading. It's clearly going to have to play within the confines of what they've created for the Arrowverse and Supergirl. Um, and again, I haven't seen the cliffhanger, so I don't know what spin they're putting on it, but it seems like it's probably going to have some kind of universal upending stuff. Um, the Red Skies, something to do with that newspaper that's been going on in the Flash TV series about mm -hmm. disappearing in a crisis. You know, like I think they're going to have elements. Um, uh, but it's going to be... I just, I'm excited. I'm excited for it. I, again, I'm not looking for it to be a total page-by-page -page recreation of what we read. But for whatever they're going to do with it, sure. Let me sit back and see see how it is. So that that might be something for us in the future if we get to watch it. Um, you know, we could do like a special one-off episode or just on that. You know, that could be fun. Hmm. So. Sure. It's within our purview. Yeah. All right. All right. Now we're going to uh, do a little bit of a U-turn here and go back to talking about... Uh, well, stuff that's a little more typical of, of uh, what the Crisis Tapes has been so far. That's uh, comics that uh, were published at the time of Crisis that uh, more directly tied in to its events. Right. This is something that we knew would happen at the end of four issues. It'll happen at the end of issue eight, and it'll happen at the end of uh, the series as a whole. Because it's probably too much to bounce out of the title to try to cover all the title, all the crossovers and all the tie-ins as we're going through the issue itself, it's, that, that's going to be too much. Yeah. So we will do some special crossover-focused episodes here. Yeah. Just depending on how much it turns out to be, we might need to do like a, two crossover episodes between Acts 2 and 3. Sure, sure. Because for this one, I went through, using my collection, all the resources online, and also the DC Universe app, which I do have, um, which is was amazing because I was able <laughs> to find some books that I just don't have. I'm sure it was a great help. Yeah. So I went through all the books that shipped from DC at the same time as Crisis 1 through 4. And we're talking titles like, obviously, like Action Comics and Superman, Wonder Woman, Omega Man, Sergeant Rock, GI Combat, Arik, Ambush Bug even. I even went through the first two issues of Ambush Bug, the first issue of Red Tornado, Infinity Inc., Green Lantern, Jonah Hex, blah, 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 Blue Devil. Just the list goes on and on. Whatever they published that was within the DC Universe. Um, I went through for those four months, and I didn't read everything. I just diligently skimmed it. <laughs> you know, so I was looking... Predominantly, I was looking for, like, red sky backgrounds. I was looking for upheaval. I was mm. looking for footnotes. Right, and, you know, little editorial captions. Yeah, I was looking for um, the word crisis. I also was looking for next issue blurbs to see if anything happened. But I only found three. Well, technically, I only found two, but there are three. Um, which, again, makes sense. As we talked about earlier on in the issue, crisis was just starting... Not every editor writer was behind it. They wanted to wait and see. It also makes sense that the crisis hadn't hit the DC universe yet, um, because it was you know as I said the crisis is months later in DC continuity time. 
So the two books that I found that have uh, a direct crisis link, one of them is Justice League of America 239. The second one is World's Finest Comics 314. And then there is a third book we're going to look at because it was footnoted in Crisis Number 4. And that's Omega Men 26. So those are the only three we're going to look at here. Um, again, if I miss something, you know, maybe somebody will let me know. And there are some things I didn't get to. I didn't look through Superman Special Number 3 because I just couldn't. I didn't find it couldn't, and uh, I don't have it. And we're not going through who's who because although I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure they had crisis mentions just yet. Maybe they did in the first five issues. They probably did. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if uh, the, the one that covers the D characters because there was an entry for Dr. Light too. Oh, then yeah. My, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, I don't know if that's one of the first five issues, but there's a way to find out. Yeah. All right. We have our, God, I forgot. I keep forgetting that. Uh, our perfect bound definitive directory of the DC universe that is so tight in the bookshelf that Adam <laughs> can't get it off. <laughs> there it is. All right, so let's see. The D is for Doctor issue. Here we go, which is uh, Daily Planet through Dr. Polaris. Oh, that's issue six. It's cover dated August of 85. And it has Dr. Light, too? Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's only like a two and a half square inch block of text in there. She's a very new character. There's not much they were able to say about her. But, yeah, that didn't reach shelves until uh, well, cover date August. So Yeah. A little after our uh, target range here. So, yeah, so those three books, um, which is really the point of why we're doing this um, episode, will uh, it'll definitely mean something more when we get uh, to the, the tie-ins from issues five through eight. Um, so, yeah, so I wasn't looking through who's who. But, uh, yeah, I was looking through a lot of books. It was kind of fun going through the DC Universe at that time. Um, how about we hit Justice League of America 239 first? Because that one feels like the most in-story. That one also feels like um, a writer who is obviously paying attention to what's going on uh, <laughs> with their big event. And it feels like the one that's in real time, right? So... Uh, Justice League of America, 239, cover date June of 85. Um, this is, you know, right near, right in the first year of the whole Justice League Detroit run. And uh, this is by Jerry Conway, writer, Chuck Patton on art, Mike McClan finishes, John Costanza, letterer, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, and Alan Gold, editor, with a very special thanks to Rick Hoberg for a few pages in the back. Um, very quickly, it is, uh, coming off the heels of, uh, I think a two-part JLA, JSA story, right? Yeah, guest written by Kurt Busick. Uh, I want to say 231 and 232 were the issue numbers there. And, uh, it was, uh, called Family Crisis, and it did involve, uh, it involved Earth 1 and Earth 2 characters. Right. So it was kind of like the JLA-JSA event of that year. And then spinning out of that, the the characters of Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash got roped into 
uh, he was kind of like a fiddler character, but he had like a oh, electric, like a guitar. Yeah. yeah, the Mad Maestro. That was, that was the guy. And that's like what directly uh, precedes these issues, mm-hmm. I think. And then, so you had old members of the Justice League reuniting with new members of the Justice League, and um, the new members are like, I mean, the old members are like, hey, who are all these new members, and why <laughs> did you Aquaman? Why did you disband the Justice League? And Aquaman has to give a reason, and he gives a very valid reason and says, look, when we were members of the Justice League in the original seven, the big seven, our heart was in it, Justice <laughs> League was our priority. Mm-hmm. And tight intertitle continuity was not a priority. Right. Uh, we were young, we had energy, we had fire, and things happened. The League just grew too big, they got new members, new me- uh, old members left, and it, it wasn't a priority. So when the Earth got attacked by Mars... The Justice League wasn't around. It wasn't at full strength. So Aquaman said, great, then I'm just going to disband the mm-hmm. team. Yep, and uh, refill the ranks with uh, heroes who are willing to make the League their first priority. Right. So they accept that, and uh, they say, well, welcome to the, all the new people. But then Sue Dibney has a question and says, look, you say you were on Earth 2 doing all these adventures for a couple of hours, we think you've been gone for three weeks, and yet in that time, Flash has been on trial. <laughs> you were here, but not here. What gives? And this is where we lead into our crisis connection. Yes, and it's John Jones who takes over from there and, uh, and presents a hypothesis to answer Sue's uh, very insightful question. Mm-hmm. So she's, uh, you know, Ralph's not the only uh, probing detective in the family, obviously. Always been such a great pair. Uh, so he says, may I suggest uh, you, meaning the leaguers who went to Earth 2, uh, were caught in a probability paradox while traveling between Earths, a ripple in the river of time. On Mars 2, recent studies of the probability matrix indicate a growing disturbance in the space-time continuum. Our scientists are at a loss to explain it, and until now it seemed only a mathematical curiosity. Such a disturbance might explain the time jump the three of you experienced. And then there's that uh, lovely little asterisk, which refers us to, for more details about this disturbance, see the Crisis on Infinite Earths maxi-series. Right. So, if all my research is solid, within the first four issues of Crisis, this is one of the only mentions of um, the current goings-on. Um, which seems kind of weird considering, you know, both the Legion of Superheroes and um, Green Lantern had some very strong references to the crisis, but it happens in the next chunk of books. Hmm. It doesn't happen right now. Yep, I think this is Jerry Conway jumping on board a little early just to uh, use the crisis as an excuse to explain... uh... (laughs) Little continuity glitch. Yeah. And then uh, I love the follow-up where Flat Barry Allen says, Sounds to me like I better take a run on my cosmic treadmill, John Jones, <laughs> and go back in time three weeks. <laughs> Superman, Wonder Woman, can I give you a lift? Anything to avoid a time paradox, Wonder Woman says. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's going to be all but impossible to avoid them soon, Diana. Yeah. yeah. Did you say Flat Barry Allen? Did I say Flat? Flash? I meant Flash. <laughs> Freudian slip, I think, because yeah. he kind of he falls into the old uh, '60s like Gardner Fox. Uh, I, I think it was 
Mark Wade uh, once said, and uh, actually I heard this uh, from a listener that I, uh, I met at Heroes Con a couple of years ago. We were attending a, I think it was a Captain Marvel-related panel. And he said something about how Mark Wade once said that in those old Silver Age Justice League stories, if the League were on a train and went into a dark tunnel and you couldn't see them, you wouldn't know which character was saying which... Uh, which word balloon belonged which character because they were all speaking with the same personality (laughs) (laughs) or lack thereof. And so here's Barry saying, oh, gee, I better get on my cosmic treadmill, John Jones, because they used to refer to each other by like their full names all the time. So they never do follow up on that. That's just a a one-off bit of dialogue there. But uh, in terms of crisis-related stuff, you know, that's, that's, that's really it. I mean, that's... About as good of an explanation as, uh, I guess you can say, for anything. Yep. And I remember I got uh, my copy of this issue uh, fairly early on uh, in my life as a DC collector. So we're talking like mid-90s. Okay. I think my folks picked it up at a yard sale in Virginia or something, like a little uh, antique or consignment shop. And I just kind of jumped into it, and uh, I saw a mention of Earth 2, and that kind of uh, pricked my ears up because I had just recently discovered the concept of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths and of parallel earths in reference to dc period so i've always been kind of curious as to what story preceded this and i guess now thanks to the research we've done for this episode i've finally found out they were fighting the the mad maestro and then the rest of the story just features vixen confronting an uncle i believe he is general mustafa maksai the gourd ox who believes he's the rightful owner of uh, of vixen's tantu totem which gives her animal powers but because he wants it uh, for evil purposes i mean uh, one of the the rules of the tantu totem is you need to be a direct descendant of tantu and you have to desire to defend innocence he's already slaughtered multiple innocents so he's as soon as he puts the thing on instead of gaining animal powers he's turned into a mindless beast resembling a humanoid ox and uh, then he proceeds to battle Vixen and uh, die in the process. But yeah, it's so yeah, the, the the whole back half of the issue. Once we get the resolution, you know, the reconciliation with the old guard of the league and the nods to Crisis and space time disturbances out of the way, as you say, Peter, it's pretty much just a Vixen solo story for the rest of it. Right. So uh, that's that issue. And now we're going to move to World's Finest Comics. Oh, wait, let me check my notes on here. Um, Justice League of America 239 possibly shipped the same week as Crisis Number 3 uh, in March of 1985. So there's that. Um, uh, yep, actually, right here. Oh. Look no further than the Meanwhile page. Yep, is. March 7th, 1985. Uh, yep, Crisis Number 3 is right there. Good. And earlier on in the story, as Aquaman is berating Superman and saying, hey, you know, this team, we, we, we can't be here. Um, he does use the word crisis uh, in a, <laughs> I just wrote, I was like, oh, look, yeah, there's the, there it is. Uh, when he says, none of us missed a crisis. We were the original league. Um, in those early days, none of us missed a crisis. We depended on each other and we were always there. I was like, yeah. You didn't miss a crisis because it was an annual thing. <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting... I mean, clearly, it's not truly uh, evocative of the infinite Earths, but uh, I like that they use that word. So then, okay, now let's move to World's Finest Comics, 314, cover date April 85, uh, um, shipped at the end of January after crisis number one. 
Now, what's so interesting about this issue is because it feels like this is the forgotten monitor appearance from anybody's list. Huh. All those annotations that we like to refer to online, um, the compendiums, um, even on Wikipedia, a lot of the DC official stuff, never reference World's Comics 314. Hmm. Part of me wondered... Is it because it shipped after Crisis Number One? But that's not true. There are other books that also shipped around the time as Crisis One that have like a pre-monitor appearance. Uh, think of that Titans issue that um, was purposely done well into when, as Crisis was going along. Right, which I don't think we've talked about on this podcast yet. Uh, I think you did. I think we did during the monitor monitoring the monitor episodes. Hmm. I think we jumped ahead. Remember, because we used to collect. We used to talk about all of the issues regardless of when it came out. I think we did. And it is referenced in a lot of like the resource material online as being a pre-crisis number one appearance, mm. even though it came out It was published after, after yeah. Correct. And but this is kind of the reverse of that. Yeah, I mean... Or, no, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's, the it's, it's the same thing. You're right. So it's not in... Uh, let's see. The Absolute Compendium from the Absolute Edition of Crisis, mm -hmm. lists other issues that came out after Crisis Number 1, had monitor appearances. This is, a, this is a definitely an omission in the compendiums part. It is not included in either of the recent companion hardcovers, which that's not complete anyway. Mm. Yeah. Um, so for me, I feel like this is where... Uh, when people like to use resources online, but they don't double check or uh -huh. follow through, they just go, well, because Jesse Nevins says, here's the whole <laughs> list of crisis appearances, I'm going to say the same thing. But I, I read this and I was like, why? It's it's almost like that vigilante appearance where everybody says, vigilante 14, <laughs> that's a crisis monitor appearance. No, it's not. If you read the issue, it is yep. not. We've both read that thing six times and there, there's not even the slightest illusion in, in, in any kind of literal way right. to, to the monitor. And yet it keeps showing up on lists because of a letter column or someone's assumption of who some background character off-panel is, right? So uh, it's like, I, I love that, that we're talking about this issue because no, I, I don't, I can't find it online. Mm -hmm. Like you'll see it on comic book DB and it will say pre-crisis monitor appearance. It'll have monitors and, and Lila's uh, link to their character and all that. But when it comes to like some of these annotations, there are a lot of people who are not talking about this issue. So you are hearing it first from us. Right. <laughs> Just goes to show you there's no substitute for firsthand original research. That's right. Damn it. <laughs> It's the same thing when people say in that, remember we, we talked about in, uh, was it issue number three, where they're back in time in Marcosia, Markovia, mm. uh, World War II time, and everybody's saying, well, that's the Earth too, Sergeant Rock. It's like, no, there's, there's no reference to that anywhere yeah. but your assumption. Uh, and they even make reference in one of these Amazing Heroes interviews that we're going to talk about. Uh, they mention that same thing about Markovia back in World War II. They don't say Earth One. They, I mean, they don't say Earth Two. But, yeah, people yeah. just seem to assume that anything that happens in a DC comic during the 40s must be on Earth right, 2, right. and it ain't necessarily so, not yeah. even pre-crisis. So, here we are, World's Finest Comics, 314, 
it is absolutely a monitor appearance in the grand scheme of all those monitor appearances leading up to issue number one. Yep. The story itself by Joe Cavalieri and Stan, Stan Walk. Walk. Yeah. Is dreadful. Did you read it? Would you manage to read <laughs> I, all of it? I read the whole it's thing. It's yeah. bad, right? <laughs> yeah. That, that <laughs> did, did World's Finest had kind of fallen on hard times. Wow. I was reading this issue going, this is a choppy mess. Like, so it's a whole thing about there's a guy working for a company who finds out that that the steel company is making faulty steel. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's an inferior alloy. It turns brittle and falls apart after a certain period of time. Yeah. And why any <laughs> any corporation with any sense of self-preservation would allow something like that to be used because it would be traced back to them eventually. They'd save a few dollars on it in the short term, but their reputation would be utterly destroyed in the long term. So. <laughs> it, it yeah, the whole premise doesn't make sense. No, but he finds this story, this secret out, and tries to leak it to the press. Right, leaks it to someone from the Daily Planet. Mm-hmm. Yep, somebody Clark Kent knows personally. Yeah, and uh, eventually that the reporter gets killed. There is uh, an assassin going after the leaker, mm-hmm. the executrix. Oh, so so bad. This um, is a female assassin. You yeah. Uh, Superman and Batman get roped into it tangentially. Uh, bridges are falling. People are saving, trying to save this this leaker. You know this uh, informant. Batman seems so inept, like right. Like he throws his, he does something once where he throws a batarang or something, and then she whips out an electric uh, rod, and she's going to dip it into some water. Yeah, that he's, he's standing in. in a fountain, and uh... yeah. So then he jumps out, but then he goes, "Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to have to total re- reevaluate how to stop her or something like that." I'm like. Just jump out the water and kick her in the head. Where did he, he? It's so bad. It's such a bad issue. Uh, there's one page where Bruce Wayne is going to turn into Batman, so he goes into his limo with Alfred, and he's turn. The picture is drawn as Bruce Wayne turning into Superman. Did you see that panel? I I did, but I, I kind of thought that that was just that was Clark Kent going uh, to Alfred's limo to change. Uh, Oh, I think I think, think Bruce Wayne was and slash Batman was somewhere else at that point, but yeah, since uh, I'm pretty sure Alfred knew Superman's double identity, since so many people seem to know both Superman and Batman's identities at that point. Okay, we're gonna check uh, the page. No, because look, Superman's already Superman. He's already Superman doing Superman things, and then Bruce is here and he's getting rid of that random girlfriend, and then. He's changing. For a little bit there, I was expecting random girlfriend to turn out to be executrix. So was I, because she had the same hair color, right? Right. Yeah. But, yeah, so at least Joey Cavalieri wasn't... He didn't do all the obvious things in this story. Regardless, it's not a great issue. Um, That woman's character is Lelaine Stern. She only appeared in World Finance Comics uh, between 312, 315, and issues 318. She owned a nightclub called... Uh, Rock Slide Nightclub. Um, so there's a random Bruce Wayne girlfriend that I, I never knew about until I read this issue. How long before she shows up in a Batman movie? <laughs> um, so the only reason we're here is because of the Monitor appearance at the end of the issue. And uh, what did you think of that appearance? It's kind of keeping and standing with a lot of the other Monitor appearances. Uh, yes, uh, in particular with uh, the appearance in World's Finest number 311, because mm-hmm. uh, 
they're actually talking to one another about uh, Superman and Batman and the last time they observed this pair. Um, and, and they're watching them just as Superman has done the Superman thing and uh, rescued Executrix after she falls from the crumbling, made from faulty iron, uh, Gotham Bridge. After failing to kill the informant, Batman is uh, perfectly content to just stand there and watch her fall to her death and uh, call it justice. That's uh, very uh, <laughs> 1939 of him. Uh, but then Superman swoops out of nowhere and fishes her out of the drink. Uh, she Apparently the impact with the water didn't break her neck or anything. And he's just, uh, he says something, oh, here we go. You might call it justice, Batman, but death doesn't satisfy my definition of the term. So, yeah, we get uh, Monitor and Lila talking to one another after that. Yeah, life's precious no matter who it belongs to. And then the Monitor says, and this is, again, this is the Dr. Seuss's The Onceler uh, version of the Monitor, where he's just sitting in a big chair, and all you see is his hand gesturing, <laughs> that skin-tight blue outfit with this equally skin-tight darker blue glove, mm -hmm. as opposed to the more armored gauntlet that uh, he had under Perez. Um, but he's standing there talking to Lila and saying, I think we've discovered the weak link in this team, Lila. It's the Man of Steel and his real vulnerability, his compassion, his infinite capacity for mercy. The last time we watched them work together, you... Okay, and this is Lila talking now. She says that uh, you spoke of Batman and his similar weakness. So they've both had a chance to look bad to the monitor. Right. And then the monitor, he picks up a clipboard and writes on it with a pen. <laughs> Real high tech here. <laughs> and cops to that assessment of Batman. So I did, so I did. You see what I've been saying, Lila? It's little things like this one notices. Subtle personality quirks within them that we can observe and use against them. So this is Cavalieri still working from the... Uh, villainous information broker uh, definition of the monitor. And we get a long shot of the of the satellite. Mm -hmm. There it is. Uh, That's the satellite. Uh, there are people who will pay well for such observations, and we are in the best position to make them, for our vantage point is far superior to anyone else's. And uh, then there's one last panel in which uh, Lila offers to show the monitor something else, and he says, yeah, there's one other thing I wanted to see, and that's just a segue to the final page, which is kind of a preview for a, an upcoming story. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Cavalieri working from obsolete information here, even after uh, Crisis Number One is uh, seen print. Uh, but one th uh, one saving grace here, though, mm -hmm. um, we do get from from this and also his observations about Superman's character flaws and Batman's character flaws in issue one three eleven. Um, we can at least say that from this, uh, this might uh, feed into how the Monitor made the decision not to send the Earth-1 Batman or Superman as part of his originally gathered team of, of characters from Crisis Number nice. 1. Nice. As Marv Wolfman does go out of his way in one of those interviews to say that we don't involve Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman right away in Crisis. Right. They don't feed in until later. Right, because it's not always about power, it's about some other things. Right, yeah. Sure. yeah. It's about showing as many different DC characters as possible before this thing is over. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, that that's an issue that uh, should have been in uh, the Monitoring the Monitor episodes that were done. But, you know, if you don't have access to all the books, it's hard to look through. So um, I was glad that we were able to dig it out and put it as part of our, you know, podcast collection. I do think one listener might have contacted us by email or something a while ago to tell us that, ah, oh, you missed one. Oh. It was in World Finest Comics. And uh, there you go. Uh, so that person, uh, you may 
uh, you, you, you may be assured now. We've, uh, <laughs> uh, so you, you were right, and uh, Peter's research has uncovered how right you were, and yeah. we've uh, re- redressed our, our oversight here. So, yeah, so everybody, if you're, uh, uh, if anybody's out there like a, a Wikipedia nut, go to Crisis, and if it doesn't have World Finest Comics 314, put it in there. Because it should be there as a pre-crisis monitor appearance. Yep, it's just one full page of uh, monitor and Lila goodness. Yep. So then the third book we're going to look at real quickly again. Um, I've, I, I I have a feeling that when we get to issues five through eight and all of the crossovers that happen between that uh, between those issues, we'll probably go a little more in depth with uh, with our tie-ins. But for now, you know these are pretty quick and. Uh, easy. Omega Men 26. So in crisis number four, during the creation of the new Dr. Light, as we referenced, uh, the monitor is uh, observing all this from his satellite as he's looking on into Japan. And you have the you have it cracked open there. So mm-hmm. um, Yep, this is uh, safely after the monitor first says to himself, uh, this uh, looks like a time for the new Dr. Light. It's time for me to create her. Mm-hmm. So now he actually goes ahead and does that on page... So this is pages eight and nine, this sequence here. Uh, so the monitor says, My en- enemy comes ever closer, and with the death of Earth-1, he shall gain that much more power. Then none will be powerful enough to stop him, but still there is one chance. My new warrior... An ion-based energy ray rips across a turbulent cosmos, its destination, the Vagan star system, and an unstable star already in the throes of self-destruction. And uh, so Monitor zaps the destabilized Vega, and Vega in turn zaps back. It sends uh, a tongue of uh, ionized solar energy in the direction of Earth. And then on the next page, page 9, well, actually on page 8, we see Dr. Kimio Hoshi uh, tongue-lashing her co-workers at uh, the Japanese observatory on Earth-1. Uh, she goes to the telescope, observes the uh, uh, solar anomaly happening uh, in the star Vega, and that's where we see the uh, uh, the star Vega. Something is happening on its surface. That light, says Dr. Hoshi, and that's where we get the caption that says, See Omega Men number 26, signed Marv. Right. What's the caption actually after? What's that... Something there. is happening on its surface. Yeah. Asterisk. Yeah. Oh, right there. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. So and uh, so it is in Omega Man number twenty six that we find out what makes uh, Vega quote an unstable star already in the throes of self destruction. Right. And when you get to Omega Man twenty six, there's uh, two stories going on, uh, and the one story that is referenced here is uh, one of the characters known as Nimbus has come upon uh, Aaron or Oron, uh, who is the son of the goddess Zal, who is in this sun or... Right? Yeah, yeah I think yep, she's yeah, been, right. Yeah, she's that powerful. She's been hiding out inside the star. Right. And sending out these tendrils, sending out these you know flames, these tendrils from the sun, and some of them are capturing Nimbus, some are just exploding out, and this is... All, all this battle that is going on between the three of them is everything that was witnessed by Dr. Hoshi uh, from her telescope. 
and um, there was more to the story, but uh, what else? Did, what did, did you manage to read it or look through it at all? Um, well, I saw a couple of sample pages online. Yeah, okay. I have the issue somewhere, but it's in the pile, so I couldn't <laughs> couldn't get it. It was one of the last uh, crisis-related issues that I was able to scrape together, yeah. I think, from in my back-issue shopping. But yeah, it's a Nimbus, Shal, and Auron are all kind of connected because uh, Nimbus was born at the moment of Auron's conception. Um, I had to look to who's who to find out about this. Apparently, uh, the, the Scions a long time ago, and the Scions are this race of reptilian scientist beings who were created by the Guardians of the Universe in one of their early experiments. And then they started roaming the cosmos, uh, doing scientific experiments on life forms they found. And they set up shop in the Vega system mm-hmm. semi-permanently a long, long time ago. And they took uh, two the two native races that they found in the Vega system. There would eventually be many more, uh, just about all of them created by the Scions very experiments. Uh, but uh, their first subject was the woman Shal, who was part of the uh, golden-skinned Okaran race. And then they took a Branks warrior from a different planet and tried to force mate them. And it wasn't working until they realized that every Branks warrior has kind of like a symbiotic soul partner um, inhabiting their body. Uh, so they had to split off this soul partner and send it shrieking into space. And that eventually, you know, millennia later, became came to call itself Nimbus. So uh, uh, he was present kind of when when Auron was conceived, and he's got a pretty intimate connection between Shal and Auron and himself. They're they're all just about equally ancient and equally powerful. So the three of them getting into this big Donnybrook in the middle of the sun is is going to cause major repercussions not only for the Vagan system but beyond. And the Monitor, I guess, uh, witnessed all of this and saw a way to uh, uh, take advantage of it in order to bring about uh, the empowerment of a new agent for himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, if we know what's going to happen with Dr. Light by the end of the crisis, how, uh, in the way that they defeat the anti-monitor, they use uh, a binary star over in Quard that's somehow he taps into. Um, you know, it does make you wonder what's the connection there. Like, wh- why the Vega... Why that star? Other than it's a DC Universe concept. Right? Yeah, and uh, a concept that's at the center of one of their ongoing series at right, that time. Right. But yeah, I, I like your, your note here, though. Uh, how does siphoning Vega's son for her powers connect her, if at all, to Vega? Yeah. So we every now and then we always... Uh, I think we did in some of the early episodes, we, we, we do this thing of... What would be some untold tales of the crisis, right? I often thought that there could have been an anthology series. Yeah. Um, ooh, uh, remind me of that in a, in a couple minutes, too. I have another thing, just for that same exact concept you just said. Okay. Um, and I thought this could be a great untold crisis story, you know, the creation of Dr. Light. We see it off-panel. I know, uh, Maybe there's a secret origin story. Maybe there's some appearance where we actually... S- see her being created, but because the rest of her appearances all happen post-crisis, we don't, I've never seen her, like, brought onto the satellite, you know, in the way that, like, Alexander Luthor was, or, uh, you know, Harbinger. Um, Bless you. (laughs) Thank you. I just think it'd be cool to see her creation, like, the actual formation of a new Dr. Light, and also, as you mentioned, Maybe she has some connection to Vega. Like maybe she could be a little bit more cosmic in her 
storytelling because of that. And wouldn't that be interesting? That would be excellent, actually, yeah. because she's always been a criminally underused character. Yeah. I mean, she was an early attempt at uh, Wolfman's you know, secondary or tertiary agenda of bringing more diversity to the revised DC universe, you know, well before it became trendy to do so. And now here we are in the age when it's all anybody's talking about is diversity and representation in comics and other media. And uh, I don't think Kimio Hoshi is being used by anyone anywhere. No. It would have been great if she could have been brought into the Omega Man, actually. Yeah. It would it would have been ideal. Yeah, but uh, they, you know, when Tom King did that Maxi series, he brought in Kyle Rayner as kind of the uh, earthling POV kind of character. Right. Um, bringing in uh, Dr. Light as well would have been a good thing to do. Yeah. She showed up, I think, on a cover of um, Superman, the the uh, the new Superman. Is that the, the the Chinese character? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, a new yeah. super. I think Dash there's a hyphen man. in there. Hyphen yeah. man. Yeah, they did a, a variant cover of all Asian uh, characters, and she's on that variant cover. Um, but that's not a, an in-story appearance. I don't. I don't know if she was there in-story. Probably not. And if so, I mean, uh, Ch- China and Japan have historically not gotten along very well. So, I don't know how um, eager she would have been to ally herself with uh, the new Justice League that uh, <laughs> that uh, Kong Kinan uh, was putting together. Uh, yeah. Oh, and there's there's another talking about uh, untold uh, stories of crisis. Uh, we don't, uh, as you say, her origin is all kind of happening off panel. The that uh, Starbolt uh, strikes uh, the the observatory, and suddenly Doctor Hoshi's gone. So even now she is being recreated, says the monitor from his distant satellite. But as you said, we don't see her being brought on board the satellite. We don't know where she goes after that bolt strikes right. her. We don't know what really happens to her. Next time we see her, uh, like six pages later, she's in her costume, and she's. Uh, and she's defending one of the vibrate uh, one of the monitor's vibrational towers. Right. So, so how she uh, uh, came to take the name and costume of Doctor Light, you know, a, a villain and not even a very successful one, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's not really shown. Yeah. Um, and that ship, Omega Man Twenty Six, shipped between Crisis Two and Three in February of nineteen eighty five. So. Uh, not necessarily a direct. The book itself doesn't reference the crisis, but as, as Adam said earlier, the crisis references the book, mm. so it's worth noting. Definitely, and we'll we'll keep doing that if we see footnotes, if we see scenes that we know are reflected elsewhere. That's what we'll take stock of for <laughs> interlude the second. <laughs> yeah. Now I find myself wondering uh, if. if if Wolfman uh, asked uh, the creative team of Omega Men to make that happen, or if he just kind of uh, sent a memo around asking writers, okay, what's something that's happening in your books that I can use as a convenient explanation for how I make this character with light powers? Right. And Wolfman, I mean, the Omega Men are his creation. That's true. You know, From the Green Lantern days. Yeah, so maybe he... uh, uh, was purposeful and wanted to make sure that there was... Omega Men content within the Crisis story um, because it's a corner of the universe that he helped to create. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. And we do see the uh, Vegas protectors a couple more times. Yeah. So, uh, what did you say before? Uh, so, so, you said Untold Anthology, right? Well, yeah. 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 This is back in the days when uh, DC was putting out uh, more like uh, quarterly or fifth week type books. I thought maybe uh, like a 48 page quarterly. Tales of the Pre-Crisis DC Multiverse uh, series would have been a, a neat thing to have. 
So I had this in my notes for when we talked about the dollar comics thing to, to make reference of, and I just I skipped it on my notes. Um, on Twitter, Kurt Busick, I, I, I don't remember when this is. I, I want to say it's around uh, December of 2018 that he, let's see, maybe around like December 2018. So Christos Gage uh, threw out there and said, hey, writers, what would be your dream project if you could write? So this is what Q Kurt Busick wrote. At one point, my dream project was a dollar comic format series called Earth One that would tell stories of any character from the Earth One continuity as if crisis hadn't happened. What do you think about that? Huh. Earth One specifically, though. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can think of other Earths that would interest me more, but... Uh, yeah, sure. Well, anything that uh, said in a, a reality where crisis hadn't happened would uh, pique my interest, certainly. Right. That's sort of extrapolating where some of those characters, it's almost like uh, one year later after uh, Infinite Crisis, or in the middle of Infinite Crisis. Mm. Like, you know, see where all those titles ended, maybe just give it a year or so and like ext extrapolate where those characters would go. Yeah, what direction their evolution would have taken if uh, it hadn't been suddenly wrenched into a new trajectory by this right. hard reboot. Yeah. Of course, not all of them were hard rebooted. We have to keep uh, right. putting that out, but several of them were. Yeah. And, and there have been, I feel, times within the DC universe that... You could almost sort of say, okay, this yes, this is 10, 15, 20 years later, but it feels like it could have existed within the same continuity, right? Like it, there's nothing about a story that contradicts anything that happened pre-crisis, you know? And certainly in the way that some writers love to play with pre-crisis concepts, um, think of Jeff Loeb <laughs> when he reintroduced, quote-unquote, a new Krypton that was very much based on Silver Age Krypton, you know? But... Um, it's kind of like when I jump into a new book, uh, like, uh, you know, two years after the New 52, uh, when I finally read a random issue of something, or a year or two after DC Rebirth, and I finally read uh, an issue of something, and I went, oh, it, it, it feels like it, it doesn't matter when it is, right? It's It's got the main character, and they still are who they are, who they've always been, Um there's no mention of anything outside of their book, so it just feels like a random Flash story, a random Green Lantern <laughs> story, you know. But uh, so I, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was kind of cool. That, that is cool. Yeah, I would definitely read that, even if it weren't Kurt Busiek writing it. What if it was like Kurt Busiek and Roy Thomas flip flopping, sort of like Secret Origins? Oh, right. So it would be like Earth One and Earth Two. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I would. <laughs> I would ultra buy that. I mean, in essence, isn't that what they? Isn't that what Convergence was? I haven't read it. So. Uh, no, no. Uh, yeah, Convergence. Well, th th there, there was this whole battle of the parallel Earths thing going on, mm. where like a, a brainiac entity was uh, conducting a, a kind of twisted cosmic experiment where he had. Uh, salvaged little beachheads of uh, extinct realities and uh, bottled them like cities, like the original Brainiac used to do. And he was pitting the residents of these uh, extinct uh, realities, some of which were pre-crisis, some of them were Elseworlds type things, okay. and, and just like having them battle it out for... And uh, the prize was whichever uh, group of... Uh, whichever reality won, um, you know, ran the table and won, would uh, be given... Would be brought back to life in the current DC multiverse, hmm. 
and it was kind of a cop-out because, uh, you know, the post-Flashpoint Earth 2, uh, the, like the planet, uh, not, not, not the series, but in, that, in the Earth 2 series, the Earth 2 planet had been destroyed. Uh, but it was those characters that ended up winning. Hmm. It was a total fix, of course. <laughs> and they just ended up getting their own little Chia Earth 2 to inhabit at, at the end of it all. So we were all kind of, I was keeping my fingers crossed that like... Uh, I don't know, pre- pre-crisis Earth 3 would become out the winner or something like that. But yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. That, that's really what Convergence was. It wasn't just uh, telling fun little throwaway stories from extinct realities. They, they were battling each other. I guess because of the, the titles and the covers seemed evocative of that. Like they specifically had titles that were 80s, 90s. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like DC versus Marvel, but DC versus DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of same sure. thing. Whoever won got to win the universe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, DC Retro. Remember that DC Retro? There were a oh, few yeah, stories. Oh yeah, retroactive. Yeah, like, yeah retroactive. D- like Wonder Woman in the sixties, seventies, and then Superman and, and and Batman and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, they did like a Justice League, I think, in the Detroit era and stuff. Yeah, yeah there, there's at least one of those uh, one shots that uh, was very intimately tied to Crisis. Actually, oh, it's the kind of thing we should probably be talking about on an episode like this. Oh. But yeah, that's. I think Pants uh, went out of his way to collect all of those. Well, that'll be for after we get done with the twelve issues and we go through all the Crisis Echoes, like all the books after mm. Crisis that will go year by year, and which you know. I like what you're saying there. <laughs> we'll be doing this until we're dead. <laughs> well, certainly at the rate of like one episode per year, we will. Yeah, be. right. Um, anything else to say about those three issues? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Okay. Are you going to read off all the... Uh, no. Because <laughs> Peter does have here a list of all the different comics he went through. Yeah. They were published at the same time as Crisis 1 through 4. I mentioned a few four. of them already, so I think yeah. that's enough. And there's one that we couldn't verify, Superman Special Number 3, right. which uh, was Superman versus Amazo, and it was written by Len Wein. And Len Wein, as we know, had a hand in the planning of Crisis also. So we can't completely rule out that it's not any kind of a Crisis tie-in, but we just can't be sure. And I have a copy of that, but I don't know where it okay. is. <laughs> A lot of those specials were inventory issues, so... Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's a good chance safe. that was written well before Crisis was an idea. So, uh, so what... That, uh, puts us on our last topic. Last segment. Look at that. We, we weren't sure how long this was going to go, and look, we're already... We're, we're <laughs> true to form. We're almost clocking in at two and a half hours Heck here. yes, we are. And this last segment, uh, which I have to give a big thanks to Mr. Phil from the old Indie, indie Spinner Act days is a feature on um, Crisis in the Press, specifically in the Amazing Heroes fan magazine of the 80s that was you know, just a stellar, stellar magazine and such a treasure trove of information in terms of resource and in terms of um, confirmation f- for a lot of things. Um, I went through issues 50 through 72 and pulled out a whole bunch of crisis-related things. There are two specific articles that we're going to focus on, but um, I'm also going to read some other things because I think there's some interesting information that is, some of it's a repeat of stuff we know. Some of it helps to cement stuff that we know. Um and some other new nuggets here and there. I would love to be able to go through David Anthony Kraft's comics interview, comics journal, comics buyer's guide. There was a magazine in the 80s called Comics Scene. 
um, but I don't have access to that stuff. Mm. Can't find it online. If only I were still at Bowling Green, the uh, Ray and Pat Brown Popular Culture Library. There has probably got uh, pretty complete archives of all this stuff. Awesome, awesome. And these, this is all stuff I would love to just buy, but you know, I'm not spending that much money. Um, but the Amazing Heroes stuff is is great because it does have a lot of stuff in it. For instance, Amazing Heroes 52. <laughs> 52. Dated August 1st, 1984 in one of their news flash segments uh, in, the, in the magazine. Lists monitor appearances in a few DC books that we already covered, including Vigilante 14. <laughs> There's that damned non-appearance again, <laughs> right? So even as far back as that, they were eluding us. Or maybe it was supposed to be, and they just they just pulled it out. Uh, Amazing Heroes 61, which was dated December 15th, 1984, in their coming attractions, has the title listed as DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths Number 1, shipping December 11th, hitting newsstands on sale date of January 3rd. So there's confirmation again that the book did ship in December was at least on newsstands by January. Mm-hmm. You've always said you were pretty sure you remembered getting your hands on your copy during the last week of December. Yeah. Um, and then we go to Amazing Heroes 62, and this is the one of the first uh, ones that we're going to stop at and pull out some notes for. Dated January 1st, uh, 1985. My sixth birthday. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Um, it is called the Major 1985 Previews Issue, and it basically just were small little articles on all books coming up. And the one we're going to focus on, obviously, is Crisis on Infinite Earths. And uh, I'm sure we both have some notes on what did you glean from this. So, mm-hmm. what did you glean? Uh, well, first of all, this is it's fairly brief and pithy. It's like like a full page, all told. Um, first thing that struck my attention is uh, the fact that the nickname for the story among the DC offices was Crisis Earth. I mean, the, the title had been set at Crisis on Infinite Earths at this point, and but the, instead of just calling it Crisis, which is uh, the, the nickname history has given it, mm-hmm. they were still calling it Crisis Earth. A little weird. I've never, yeah, and that's something I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else. So maybe i mean i'm you know they'd probably whittled it down to one word by the end of yeah. of that year because they were just so tired of talking about it right um okay uh marv wolfman you know he talks uh, uh, there's actually some information repeated between this article and the one coming up in issue 66 yeah. um but one one such example is uh Wolfman talking about how he and Len Wein had to ultimately divide the labor between them. The, the idea had originally been they would both work on both Crisis and Who's Who together. Uh, but in the end, they, they, they had to divide it up so that Wein became like the dominant force on Who's Who and, and uh, Marv Wolfman just became the predominant plotter and writer and editor of Crisis, uh, which he said worked out well because he, he claims to be, uh, quote, stronger in terms of plotting than Len Wein is. Interesting. Wonder what Lee Ween would have said about that. Yeah, the two. Yeah, the two of them. They were friends for a very long time, but apparently they had uh, uh, were, were at odds and hadn't spoken to each other for a while. By the time uh, Ween passed away, mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I doubt that uh, that any animosity they had between them stemmed back this far. But, right, right. but still, if if I were Ween, I don't. I think I would have given Wolfman a dirty look for saying that. <laughs> Um, he mentions that, uh, quote, several entire series will be introduced in Crisis Earth. Spinoffs. And 
Uh, I'll be darned if I can, th- unless she's talking about like the Man of Steel uh, rebooting of Superman. They're, they're... I don't think that came that early. The only thing I thought is maybe were they talking about like the loser special? Um, were they thinking ahead and did they know that Wally, well, I mean, he became the Flash, but he didn't get a book until after Legends, you know, like, um, I, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't know the specifics of Man of Steel, but maybe they knew that he was going to get a new book. Maybe they knew Wonder Woman was going to get a new book, mm-hmm. but it just took a long... I mean, both of that stuff didn't happen until closer to Legends. Mm-hmm. So It's true. Or it was, or is it just Wolfman thinking that he knew by the end of the series, what, were they still in discussion of what they were going to do post-crisis? Were they going to stop all their books? Were they not going to stop mm. all their books? Oh, that's, yeah, that's also a very good point. Yeah. Because at one, at one point, Wolfman did think that all the DC series are just going to stop and relaunch from number one. Right. Something that, uh, he, he ultimately lost that battle. Right. But, but yeah, that, that might be what he meant by uh, the spinoffs. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Wolfman, one thing that stuck out for me, how Wolfman, uh, Wolfman said in this article, uh, originally it was a project called simply The History of DC. We've known that for some time. Uh, and we decided to change that as we began discovering all the problems and mistakes and things that needed to be simplified in the DC universe. Um, uh, it is not a strict chronology. It was originally planned that way, but as we got more and more involved with that aspect of it, we realized that it made a bad comic. <laughs> and, you know, having read uh, the history of the DC universe, uh, which followed Crisis, which basically was a strict chronology, uh, illustrated beautifully by Perez, um... I mean, it wouldn't have been any, the same comic. would have been as thrilling a comic, certainly, but I don't think I would have uh, called it a bad comic. Right, right. And I know Roy Thomas would disagree because he's done some comics that were strict chronologies. Yeah. I think um, this is going on to a future Amazing Heroes issue, but at, by this point, they still thought the final two issues were going to be what became the history of the DC Universe. So even though... in one of these articles, he he talks about the whole four-issue story arc. Uh, they still had it in their minds that the last two issues were going to be some kind of retelling of the DC universe, but obviously that got changed and morphed. Let's see. Something else I'm pretty sure I got out of this same article... Um, I'm not finding it in the text at the moment, but I have it written down here. Uh, Wolfman claims that he seized on the idea of that uh, Crisis was coinciding with the 50th anniversary of DC by accident. Yeah, he said, like, no one seemed to know that it was... <laughs> yeah, so apparently. I mean, I've seen Crisis described in some of DC's marketing as, like, a, the centerpiece of their 50th anniversary celebration. It sounds like, according to Wolfman here, if it hadn't been for him and this Crisis idea of his, there wouldn't have been a 50th anniversary celebration. I mean, you know, his his concept of it goes back at least, what, four or five years before actual execution of it, so maybe, maybe, I mean, who knows? We can only speculate what DC would have done for their 50th anniversary hadn't, if it hadn't been for him, so maybe, uh, I don't know, I, you know, that seems kind of weird, but yeah. And that's him saying it in 1984, five, four, so... Yeah, maybe, maybe he's right. Interview would have been conducted in yeah, yeah. eighty four. It's not we can't we can't blame faulty uh, memory like Roy Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple passages that I got out of there. Uh, he says some villains will become heroes and some heroes will become villains. And I wrote, have we seen that in Crisis? And my first thought was Doctor Light. It's not truly a villain becoming a hero, but it right. is a name 
that we associate as a villain becoming now a hero name. So that's kind of close. Um, I thought, is he referencing someone like Killer Frost or Dr. Polaris who are being used for the good, you could say? Mm, strong argument for that. Yeah. Did we see any hero become bad during the series? I think his original intention was for Red Tornado to follow that uh, path. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, and we do see him kind of exploding and being you know, the tornado tyrant aspect of him running amok during the right. events of Crisis. Right. I guess he was supposed to be like an, an ecological villain from that point, you know, just the, the revenge of a wronged uh, environment. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, that, that didn't exactly stick. Right. Uh, and then I, he also says here, certain characters will be salvaged from each universe leading to one Earth, which I wrote, spoilers much? <laughs> I mean, he basically gave away the end of the series and the first issue had barely come out. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I guess that must have been in people's minds. I mean, you know, the internet certainly was around, but there still were, were trade magazines, obviously, as we're reading. Mm -hmm. And there's Scuttlebutt and maybe there might be some conventions. So... Either he feels safe to say such a thing because not a lot of people are going to read it, or they just were like, no, we know what the outcome is going to be. It's just basically how we get there. Well, yeah, I think they were being pretty upfront as to the uh, aim of this series, yeah. you know, just to streamline the continuity and the, the, and the diegesis, just to make a, a single unified timeline and just one Earth to keep track of. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's all in the journey, I right. think, beyond that. Uh, now let's see, he compared what he was trying to do here to Robert Heinlein's uh, body of work, how a lot of his novels were set in the same timeline, the same mm -hmm. world, uh, but not all of them. Right. And that's a, And that's one of two mentions of that, and I thought that was something I wanted to make focus of, so I'm glad you brought it up, because I don't think I've ever read that before, That because he says it in the later article, too, about not only about the timeline... But not all. But you don't have to necessarily make mention of all those other characters. But yet, there's also stories outside of the timeline that are still written by the same author, I guess. And it's very much like what DC was like. They had books within their continuity. They had books outside of their continuity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he mentions it in the later article too. So I thought that was kind of cool to see because I don't think I've ever read it, that before. That he took that. I don't know how strongly he took the concept, but he at least acknowledged that concept. So that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Acknowledging his uh, little literary influence there. Yeah. Uh, no, he makes uh, the joke about how this series is going to cover everything from Anthro the First Boy to Commandy the Last Boy. And then along comes Grant Morrison years later and uh, literally shows us exactly that in right. Final Crisis. Right. I wonder if he read this article. <laughs> And uh, one, one uh, remark of Wolfman's that I thought was kind of odd. Uh, there is no way that these books can be the most incredible comics ever done. I mean, good on him for being modest, but what kind of leading question <laughs> must he have been asked to extract a remark like that from him? I almost feel like it's his way of sort of saying, look, uh, to go back to what you said before about, like, he doesn't want to... He likes to give credit where credit is due. He says that Perez is the one that came up with using Crisis on Infinite Earths as a title based on the whole Justice League team-ups, right? He likes to give Robert Greenberger, Peter Sanderson, Len Wein their due. Jeanette Kahn and Dick Giordano are the ones who really pushed him about the whole death list. And I feel like it's his way of saying, uh, an echo of like using 
making sure that the other editors and writers were involved, of mm. him saying, look, I'm not trying to be the man that is responsible for this. Like, I don't want to come out of this and and brag that I'm the one that made it happen, you know? So I almost feel like he's sort of saying, look, they it may not, it's kind of what we started the episode with, like, it may not be the best thing. We're just trying something that has never been tried before. Mm. So I have no idea how it's going to turn out. So I, I don't know. I think it's sort of, is, does it feel like it could be in that kind of vein of like, I'm not trying to say we're going to totally revolutionize because this could, it could have tanked, right? Like this yes, could have very well easily. tanked. There's yeah. a lot of risk involved as many of his uh, colleagues at DC were trying to warn him. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of took it in that kind of light when he said that. Because mm. I, I noticed that too in that article. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, looking at it that way, that's a really kind of a sensible thing for him yeah. to say. yeah. Uh, last note I had uh, pertains to uh, the, the last sentence uh, of, of the article, the last quote from Wolfman. If crisis didn't simplify DC, there would have been no reason to do the book. Well, <laughs> it didn't really simplify DC. But does that mean, in hindsight, there was no reason to do the book? Right. I don't think so. Yeah. And, yeah, that'll be, a go- that'll be some great discussion post-crisis, post-issue 12 mm. of- you know, uh, again, this article was written in 1984, so he had no idea what the editors and the mark and the bean counters and uh, all he, the suits. He didn't even know what the, how the story would end at that yeah. point. So for him, you know, he's very clearly thinking one Earth, one timeline, and then we get there, and it's like, well, because of some writers and editors who were probably still being stingy and like, I still want my toys, you know, to play with. So I feel bad for the guy because uh, he was right. You know, he was, he. Pr- they probably should have, we talked about this before, it probably should have all started with number one issues. I mean, mm-hmm. as love or hate the new 52, when that first month of books came out, retailers were like Uncle Scrooge swimming in money. I mean, <laughs> for a number of months after it. So yeah. imagine at a time where, it might, I don't know, maybe maybe it would have been the same thing. Maybe, I, I don't know if they would have been a, as cavalier as he wanted the, them to be of totally changing identities and all that kind of stuff. Sort of like what Golden Age became, or like what the Silver Age came out of the Golden Age, right? Hmm. They did change identities. Um, would they have gone to that extreme or would they have just kind of restarted their titles? Yeah, I don't know. That's, if they had, I think it would have backslid pretty quickly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. But that'll be a discussion yeah, down the road. All just, just conjecture anyway. Yeah. By the way, um, I wrote it here, but I don't, think it's, I don't think I gave you any of the images for this. So they're doing previews of all kinds of titles. One of the previews they did a title of is Secret Origins, which was uh, shortly coming out. Yep. It's a kind of an important post-crisis uh, companion series. Yep. And it says, Plans currently call for two-thirds of the stories to take place on Earth 2. Though, in light of the concurrent goings-on in Crisis, Roy Thomas says that he won't use that term a lot. So I thought that was kind of <laughs> carrying on the whole Roy Thomas side of yeah, things. So yeah. apparently it was out there in the air that the multiverse, the parallel Earths, were yeah. not long for <laughs> uh, the this world, if you'll excuse the expression. Right. All right, so then uh, a couple more notes before we get to our next article. Amazing Hero 63 was dated January 15, 1985. 
uh, in the coming attractions, it's still called DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it says here, 15 heroes and villains race through time to save the Earths. And it ships January 15th, newsstands, uh, on sale, newsstands February 7th. So that was issue number two. Amazing Heroes 64, dated February 1st, 1985. In the Newsflash segment, uh, the first spinoff of Crisis is the Loser's Special, which will be written by Sergeant Rock scripter Robert Kaniger and edited by Murray Boltonoff. And it'll be 40 pages, and it'll appear sometime during the summer, so they knew that that spinoff was coming out before issue two even hit the stands. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd call it more of a tie-in than a spinoff. But yeah. We'll, we'll buy the... But, like, contemporary vocabulary. Sure. Anyway. Um, in that issue, there's some major DC advertisement, a full cover of Crisis Number 1, an insert, a who's who ad. Um, it's all stuff that we've sort of been seeing in other books. Amazing Heroes 65 was dated February 15th, 1985. Now, this I find interesting um, because only issue 2 had shipped of Crisis, but in this new f- newsflash... Jerry Ordray will take over inking from Dick Giordano on Crisis. So they knew as early as issue one or two, I guess, at, or the release of one and two. Because that makes sense. They probably would have been working on issues four or five by that point. But um, retailers and fans uh, knew that Jerry Ordway was going to come on the book. Hmm. That's kind of cool. Yep. And uh, I doubt anyone was all that surprised. Yeah. I mean, inking the... the Perez pencils uh, to that degree of detail would be a, a very time-consuming task, and uh, Giordano, as VP of the company, didn't have that much time to consume. Right. And then in the coming attractions of that same issue, again, they still call it DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths number three, hmm. shipping February 12th, new stand on sale March 7th. Leading us to the big crisis issue, Amazing Heroes 66, dated March 1st, 1985, uh, so two issues had been out, possibly a third or com- shortly coming out by the time you read this article. It has a cover by Perez featuring Harbinger and the monitor and the satellite and all the earths behind it. And in an article by Mark Wade, we get an overview of the crisis detailing some information that we already know, cementing some information that we already know. Um, but it is a major article. And that issue, again, if you're a completist, if you're a crisis kid and you're a completist, you need this issue. The cover's gorgeous. Perez at his height, one of his heights, his first height. (laughs) He's a man of many peaks and pinnacles. Yes. Uh, So we got a lengthy article from a whole bunch of people's perspectives. Mar Wolfman, George Perez, uh, uh, I think Greenberger's in here too. Um, what do you have uh, in terms of this issue of this interview? Uh, well, talking of uh, uh, Wolfman having spoiled the ultimate outcome of Crisis, uh, this article actually has uh, some pretty major story beat spoilers for the fourth issue, because he comes right out and tells you, "Oh yeah, the monitor's gonna die." <laughs> oh right, yeah. <laughs> so again, yeah, maybe and at the hands of Harbinger, right? I think he even says yeah. that she was created. Yeah, that's so weird. It's into her background and her destiny and all of that. And yeah, that's a, maybe you're right about how Wolfman just assumed very few people would be reading this. <laughs> maybe he thought of Amazing Heroes as like a trade journal, which yeah. I don't think it actually was. Um, okay, so there's there's some spoilers in there. Um, 
Um, I was happy to see that uh, he gave some uh, Wolfman gave some due to Dan Mishkin as yeah. uh, probably mm-hmm. the uh, most uh, eager contributor of ideas and input uh, for things that could be done with this with the series concept, probably more than anybody short of Roy Thomas. Right. And I'm, I actually got to meet Dan Mishkin not long ago. Cool. Yeah, he was. Uh, I went to back, back to Bowling Green for a Batman academic conference. Oh, you went to it. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Yep. Nice. So nice. I got to. Mike W. Barr was there, and cool. Dan Mishkin was there, and a bunch of academic presenters were there to talk about Batman. And, Very uh, cool. And Mishkin talked uh, not just about Batman, but about his role at DC in the '80s overall. And uh, he, he talked about, uh, among other things, uh, what happened with Crisis. Nice. And so uh, I'm glad to see a fellow uh, Bowling Green uh, uh, student. Uh, get his due there from from Wolfman. Um, he talks about uh, Harbinger and Pariah, the new characters, and basically admitting that uh, <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing as <laughs> when he put the, these characters were half baked. He says uh, Harbinger's powers are semi undefined. He says, and I quote: "I haven't yet worked out Pariah's abilities, only because he won't be that essential to the outcome." So he's just <laughs> saying, "Yeah, he's a throwaway character. He's he's just in it." His role in the story is that he's in the story. Right. Along those lines, he says, uh, uh, Monitor has no superpowers, which... Which is kind of contradicted a few times in the yeah. actual text. He says, Harbingers are machine-given, mm-hmm. which is in the story of her always going into the machine, but it, but I guess when she gets... When all the worlds go get reborn and she gets reborn, I wonder if that's changed. Yeah, maybe yeah. when the energies of the the dead monitor flow into yeah. her, that might make the difference. Yeah, because yeah, I, I have to think uh, Wolfman rethought his position on the monitor, having no real superpowers of his right. own. I mean, there's in the second issue where he monitor goes to sit on the chair, and I think it's Doctor Polaris tries to zap him or Simon or something, and monitor just kind of goes like a force field. It could be technical. It could be, you know, technology and not his own powers, but... Um, yeah, just a sufficiently advanced technology that's indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. But then I guess in Crisis 7, when you get the origin of the Monitor, he very clearly has a sphere of energy that he's looking at the Anti-Monitor yep. in. And so. he has to battle the Anti-Monitor with it, too. Yeah. So And he's naked, so there's no <laughs> technology there. <laughs> Things change. He morphed his ideas. Right. Yeah. He, he did that a lot. Yeah. Um, on the art end of things, I was surprised to see Perez uh, calling Crisis his swan song for series work. He thought he was going to take some break from, regu- uh, well, possibly permanent, obviously not permanent, as history shows us, but he, right. he seemed to think it might be, from series work for a while. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of bittersweet reading that now that he's officially retired right, right. fairly recently. I also like that Perez says he didn't want an overview beforehand so he could be surprised as he got each script. Yep, getting his... Uh, his fan jollies from <laughs> reading this because he, he wouldn't get the opportunity to read the finished product like new. So yeah. reading the script did that for him. And he joked that uh, by him not being uh, a co-plotter, he could absolve himself from any blame when <laughs> readers were like, what are you doing? Because I don't know, I'm just drawing the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but address brickbats to uh, Wolfman and maybe Greenberger, but <laughs> I just draw the thing. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other notes on this? I have a few others if you don't. Uh, well, uh, uh, one more I think I'll save uh, for, for, for later. Okay. Especially if it's one of those on your list. Okay, uh, let's see. Well, we get some more Robert Heinlein mentions, which mm-hmm. is cool, uh, which I've never seen before. Um, I said earlier, by this point, the final two issues were still going to be the history. They even, I think, make mention that 
if not the final two, at least the last one might be the history, but obviously that changed. Um, something uh, Wolfman says uh, about the Monitor and his pre-crisis appearances, um, because we decided to use him this way after the fact, there were some minor discrepancies. He's trying to talk about they took the character of the librarian, they showed him up, in, they, they put him into that new team. When, when they decided that they were going to use him for this event, they showed him in New Teen Titans very early on. They obviously knew what his role was going to be within the crisis. And then did they say, well, we should percolate him, we should pepper him through the DC and all these appearances? Like, I'm a little confused by his recounting of those pre-crisis number one monitor appearances. What I think he's saying is they developed him for the series and then said, oh, we should put him in the DC universe. But then he's not the same personality. Or is he saying that he knew the Monitor was going to show up in all those DC books and then he said, oh, I could use him in the crisis? Which that doesn't seem to make sense, right? No, no, it yeah. doesn't. So the whole wording of it is a little weird in that paragraph and... And we've talked a lot about the personality discrepancies of the monitor. Oh, yeah, constantly. That's what the whole Monitoring the Monitor series of episodes were all about. Right. So it does make me wonder what the sequence is there. and, and Or or maybe they knew they were going to do the whole peppering of the monitor and his personality was going to stay the same, and then they decided to go, oh, he should be, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. And that paragraph didn't help me figure it out either, so. <laughs> And that's all my notes for that issue. Yeah, I uh, the one more thing I had sure. was uh, again it's uh, turning our gaze back to poor Roy Thomas and uh, how 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 badly uh, this uh, affected him and his prospects at DC. Um, here on uh, page twenty eight of the article, where uh, Wolfman. Uh, Here here we go. Uh, Moreover, although the overall plan is to have all DC's multiple Earths collapsed into one, so that's public knowledge here, um, they will still be a part of DC history. Well, (laughs) Earth-1, a quote from Wolfman, Earth-1 and Earth-2 will have existed and will have mattered. We're not denying them. All-Star Squadron will still be placed on Earth-2. There will be some pasts that will never have existed. Not much. It's being done with the best of intentions and as much care as possible. Well, that's uh, not exactly the way it worked out in the end. So, so that, that's the kind of assurances that Roy Thomas was being given, that uh, Earth-1 or the, the, the various parallel Earths would continue to exist at some point in a variant past. Right. But then the, 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 the breaking point there would be 1985, and past that point they don't exist and very few people would remember that they had existed. Right. So as long as he keeps setting his all-star squadron stories in the 40s, that, that's still a multiversal zone. But uh, I guess in the end, they decided that would just make things even more confusing than they had been. Yeah, like, so it goes back to you. And did they do that in Infinite Crisis? They, they, they referenced that there was a multiverse, right? When I, I seem to remember them showing the Silver Age rocket ship and the John Byrne Superman rocket ship. Um, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, Um but uh, who was showing or seeing those images? I think it was Alexander Luthor. Well, okay, he, well, yeah, he yeah. of course would know. He would know. He, he and uh, the other guys in the uh, the pocket universe, like right. uh, Superboy Prime, Earth Two, Superman, and Lois. They they would know. Right. And I seem to even rem- maybe it was 
maybe it was the Earth 2 Superman's rocket ship, because I, I think I mentioned at the time, oh, isn't it interesting that even though they're talking about pre-crisis, they're using the John Byrne imagery, not pre-crisis Superman, which we've talked about many times as, as saying he has not shown up. Yeah, what the hell is the pre-crisis Earth 1 Superman? Earth 1 Superman, yeah. The Kurt Swan Superman. He's not to be found. Um, but I think we I think we've talked about that before, about how cool that would be if if you truly broke the time barrier to 1984, it would be pre- pre-crisis. <laughs> Not the revamped history, but, you know, say la vie. Yeah. Now that is... Well, I think the time trapper had the same idea. Yeah. And what... Wait, and where... Oh, uh, well, yeah, you know, th- this is you know, one of those weird little post-crisis time patches that oh. they invented. But remember, he created that whole pocket universe, oh, which is just right. a little beachhead of pre-crisis Superman continuity. Right, right, sure. The Time Trapper created so that Superboy could still exist and could still inspire the Legion yeah. and could keep uh, the Time Trapper's future reality intact. Right. I thought you meant something else. My bad. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a fluid, fluid, fluid series. Just like we said way at the beginning of this episode, mm-hmm. corporate That's comics. what makes it so much fun to discuss. Yeah. Uh, and then continue rounding out our Amazing Heroes here. Amazing Heroes 67, dated March 15th. Very simply, again, Comic Attractions calls it DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths number four. When are they going to get that memo? I don't know. Amazing Heroes 69, dated April 15th, uh, lists the following October cover-dated books on sale during the summer will interweave with Crisis on Infinite Earths. DC Comics presents 86, Flash 350, eh, Superman 412, Omega Man 31, Blue Devil 17, New Teen Titans 13, All-Star Squadron 50, uh, and Comic Attractions still calls it DC Universe, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Let's see, Amazing Heroes 71, dated May 15th, uh, DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths number 6, ships May 14th, on sale on newsstands June 17th. Uh, the Loser Special ships May 14th, and there was a DC Comics ad of issue number seven where Superman was holding Supergirl. So at least by issue five, we knew that Supergirl was going to be dead. If we happen to be reading Amazing Heroes. Yeah, and that, but then they would also have house ads, and retailers got that poster. I wonder how early they got that poster. Um, And that's it. That's really it uh, for the Amazing Heroes. So. If I get any more information somewhere else, uh, you know, it's always fun to go back into that textual stuff. Oh, always. Yeah. <sighs> and, uh, well, we have delivered a bushel of content here for our little <laughs> interlude episode. Yeah. So, as we said, this is what um, we hope to do for future interludes, but let's not think about that just yet. <laughs> let us... Let us uh, See how we can get, you know, see how we get to the next. Obviously, the next episode would be about, we think, would mm. be about. Um, Part one of issue five. Right. So either that'll happen or if for some reason you watch the Crisis TV event, then both of us will talk about that. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. We we'll, could certainly do a mini episode about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's it. Yeah. Happy 10th anniversary in case oh. we don't ever do an episode this year. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll try. We'll try. I mean, gosh, I, I mean, I do end up, um, unfortunately, my schedule uh, in Stone Harbor ramps down probably right about the same time yours ramps in September? up. September? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I think well, we've had some success uh, like with early November. 
Yeah, so so maybe we can get another one in before the anniversary. But too, like we're we're recording on a Tuesday. Tuesdays work great for me. I mean, mm. so because I don't teach on a Tuesday, mm. so yep, they're great for me during the summer because it's uh, one of the slower days of the week. Well, I mean, we could always schedule for August. Mm. All right. If you want to try to jump right into issue five. Oh, we're really going to be spoiling the, the, the boys and girls at home here. Hey, there was those two episodes we did, uh, you know, remember we did two episodes all in one? It was the last two episodes. We did all in one day, and then we released it one month and then the next month. Huh. The tricky thing about episode five, it is it has that cover with all the faces. That's going to take a long we're, time. Yeah, we're not going to be able, we're, we're like vampires here. You, you scatter <laughs> objects in front of us. We have to pick them up and count them and name them all. And then it has that double page spread in the middle, too. <laughs> Of all the oh years. that one that's issue five Ay-ya. that might wind up being a three parter. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, JLA Avengers number three cover. Yeah, yeah. but uh, we'll see. We'll see where we will go. Like I like I, I love doing this series, so mm. um, so do I. And I have nothing to do in August, so hmm. all right. Well, we'll s- we'll see. We will see. We'll I mean, see. No, August that's all we is can promise. It, it usually does get pretty busy in Stone sure. Harbor at that time, but we'll. We'll see what we can make happen. But in the meantime, this has been Interlude the First, after the first act of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the maxi-series. We'd like to encourage all of you to go to uh, thecomicforums.vanillacommunity.com, where there will be a talkback thread about this episode, where you can share your own thoughts and observations and your own original research about the topics uh, that we have covered here today. So thank you very much for listening. We're getting out of here just shy of three hours. Be good to one another, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time.